Good morning. I am very happy to welcome you to this abbreviated annual gathering of the National Rifle Association. Thank you all for coming and thank you for supporting your organization. I also want to applaud your courage in coming here today. Of course, you have a right to be here. As you know, we've canceled the festivities, the fellowship we normally enjoy at our annual gatherings. This decision has perplexed a few and inconvenienced thousands. As your president, I apologize for that. But it's fitting and proper that we should do this. Because NRA members are, above all, Americans. That means... <laughs> That means that whatever our differences, we are respectful of one another and we stand united, especially in adversity. I have a message from the mayor, Mr. Wellington Webb, the mayor of Denver. He sent me this and it says, don't come here. We don't want you here. I say to the mayor, well, my reply to the mayor is I volunteered for the war they wanted me to attend when I was 18 years old. Since then, I've run small errands for my country from Nigeria to Vietnam. I know many of you here in this room could say the same thing, but the mayor said, don't come. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for the newspaper ads saying the same thing. Don't come here. This is our country. As Americans, we're free to travel wherever we want in our broad land. They say we'll create a media distraction, but we were preceded here by hundreds of intrusive news crews. They say we'll create political distraction, but it's not been the NRA pressing for political advantage, calling press conferences to propose vast packages of new legislation. Still, they say, don't come here. I guess what saddens me the most is how that suggests complicity. It implies that you and I and 80 million honest gun owners are somehow to blame. That we don't care. We don't care as much as they do. Or that we don't deserve to be as shocked and horrified as every other soul in America mourning for the people of Littleton. Don't come here. That's offensive. It's also absurd.
Because we live here. There are thousands of NRA members in Denver and tens upon tens of thousands in the state of Colorado. NRA members labor in Denver's factories, they populate Denver's faculties, run Denver corporations, play on Colorado sports teams, work in media across the front range, parent and teach and coach Denver's children, attend Denver's churches, and proudly represent Denver in uniform on the world's oceans and in the skies over Kosovo at this very moment. NRA members are in City Hall, Fort Carson, NORAD, the Air Force Academy, and the Olympic Training Center. And yes, NRA members are surely among the police and fire and SWAT team heroes who risked their lives to rescue the students of Columbine. Let's not overdo it! Come here. We're already here. This is a distinct privilege for me to introduce the Colorado Secretary of State, Miss Vicki Buckley, who offered to officially welcome you, the members of the National Rifle Association. Her biography is the American dream. She is a giver. She's a founding member and director of the Colorado Stand Up for Kids organization. She takes to the streets to help homeless children. She's worked tirelessly in the cause of stopping youth and gang violence. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Miss Vicki Buckley. I greet you as Secretary of State of Colorado, and I welcome you to Colorado, a state where some of us believe strongly in the entire Constitution of these United States, including... <laughs> including the Second Amendment. Isn't it ironic that many who would run you out of town would themselves be unable even to vote had we as a nation not honored all provisions of the United States Constitution. <laughs> to them I say, shame on you. I stand before you today as one who has worked closely with the family of Isaiah Scholes. Isaiah was the Columbine High School student who was killed in part because of the color of his skin. I must agree with Isaiah's father, Michael, who has stated that guns are not the issue. Hate what pulled the trigger of violence is the issue. Yeah. 
We are witnesses to new age hate crimes, which we must eliminate if we are to remain the greatest nation on earth. What is a new age hate crime? When our children leave for school without a value system which places a premium on human life, we are accessories to a new age hate crime. when you raise your children and send them to school without a value system which teaches the difference between right and wrong, then parents, we have committed a new age hate crime. I say to those who run our schools, when you allow our children to graduate who are technologically and functionally illiterate, you have committed a new age hate crime. because those children are destined to be economically tortured to a death as though, they, as though they had been chained behind a pickup truck as the gentleman in Jasper, Texas. Those who would run the NRA out of town need to look at our own children who are engaging in irresponsible sex and having children they cannot take care of. Such irresponsible sex is a new age hate crime. Raise... Raise as much heck about that as you do the NRA, and you will have saved more lives in five years than are taken with guns in a century. the language of hate in our homes when terms such as nigger are freely used when we are laying the foundation for these are new age hate crimes the language of hate must be challenged just because just before a skinhead gunned down a black man on the downtown streets of Denver last year he asked are you ready to die nigger Columbine eyewitness accounts reveal that just before Isaiah's killers fired they asked where is that little nigger this is the language of hate, and this must go. Now, I know that some of what I've said here today can make some of us squirm a little bit, but we are all guilty of harboring some form of prejudices and stereotypes. But it is when we are most uncomfortable about addressing an issue that we truly become so close to a real problem solving. Ladies and gentlemen, we can do better. I'm not a hyphenated American, I'm an American. That is why I know we can do better. I find it difficult to discuss, but I have been a victim of a gunshot wound. I know firsthand the pain and the fear, but that experience has not made me an opponent of NRA or the Second Amendment. 
That is why. That is why I stand before you today and ask you to join with me and commit NRA resources to combat violence and hate. I am not talking a slick PR campaign. I am talking about a prog programmatic approach designed to combat violence and hate. I will be in touch to make sure that this proposal becomes a reality. Together, we can work for a living memorial to those who perished at Columbine. But we must stand ever strong against those who would ignore sections of the U.S. Constitution, which they do not like. We We are a strong democracy because the guiding principles of our Constitution and all of its amendments, including the second, must be adhered to in its entirety and not selectively. Thank you and God bless America. Columbine High School shooting back in 1999 killed 13 people in a Colorado high school. Two teenagers were responsible. In the hours and days that followed, leaders of the National Rifle Association huddled in private to debate how to react. And today, we want to play for you never-before-heard recordings of those meetings. Here's the NRA's top official, Wayne LaPierre, and lobbyist Marion Hammer discussing whether to cancel their annual meeting, scheduled only days later in nearby Denver. We have meeting insurance. I just screw the insurance. The message that it will send is that the, even the NRA was brought to its knees and, and the media will have a field day with it. NPR has obtained more than two and a half hours of tapes like this, and they reveal that the NRA contemplated taking a vastly different public position than the uncompromising stance that they've come to be known for after mass shootings. NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack obtained those tapes, and he joins us now. Hey, Tim. Hey there. So tell us, how did you get these tapes in the first place? So they were recorded some 22 years ago by a participant on the call who provided it to NPR, and we've taken steps to verify the identities of those on the call. What you can hear on these tapes is the deliberations about what to do about the annual meeting and the problem of having it so close to the site of the Columbine shootings. About a dozen of the NRA's top executives, officials, lobbyists, and PR strategists are all scrambling onto this conference call. You have Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre, who's there, and longtime ad man Angus McQueen is too. Marion Hammer, the former NRA president, joins the line. They kind of sound shaken. Here's the NRA's top lobbyist at the time, Jim Baker. This is the same concern, obviously, that everybody has, is that at the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. It's clear to the participants on the call that this is the biggest crisis the NRA has faced in years. It's fascinating. What are some of the possible responses that they're coming up with on this phone call? 
So they've got a few options. Uh, they can cancel the convention entirely. They can kind of pare it down. And they're also wondering if there's any action they can take. Can they contribute money to the victims, for example? Here's NRA official Kane Robinson. Is there something concrete that we can offer, not because guns are responsible, but because we care about these people? Is there anything? Does that look crass? Or, uh... And so they even discuss giving money. Like a victim's fund. Or... Yeah, we create a victim fund and, and we, uh, we give the victim a million dollars or something like that. Uh, does that look bad or does it look... Uh... Well, I mean, that can be twisted, too. I mean, why, why are you giving money? You feel responsible? No, well, you're true. It can be twisted, but we feel sympathetic and uh, respectful. So I don't know if you can hear that there. He says respectful. So it's, yeah. a, it's the suggestion of a softer tone. But over the hours of tape, you can hear as they settle into this view of the position they must take. I've got to tell you, we've got to think this thing through because if we duck tail and run, we're going to be accepting responsibility for what happened out there. That's, that's one very good argument, Jim. On the other side, if you don't appear to be deferential in honoring the dead, you end up being a tremendous head who wouldn't tuck tail and run, you know? So it, it's a double-edged sword. So you can hear the two competing tensions there. Such an interesting window into this time. I mean, Tim, you have been covering the NRA for quite some time now, and just listening to these, what, nearly three hours of tapes? I'm just curious what else struck you. So there's been this long-standing internal problem with the group. Often its most radical members are also its most passionate and dedicated. So the NRA exists in part to advocate for the legislation, but there have always been hardline gun activists within the organization, disinterested in any sort of legislative compromises. And on the tape, you can hear the NRA's leaders referring to these members in less than flattering terms. Here's LaPierre again. You know, the other problem is holding a member meeting without an exhibit hall. You know, yeah. The people you are most likely to get in that member meeting without an exhibit hall are the nuts. That's, That's right. That made that point earlier. I agree. The fruitcakes are going to show up. They're talking about what's called the annual members meeting. It's an unscripted event where the NRA supporters can propose resolutions or make speeches from the floor. And it's clear the NRA's top leaders feared it would get out of control after Columbine. The next bit I want to play comes from Hammer. If you pull down the exhibit hall, that's not going to leave anything for the media except the members meeting. And you're going to have the wackos with all kinds of crazy resolutions with all kinds of dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots and and it's gonna it's gonna be the worst thing you can imagine it's really shocking to hear the nra's officials disparage some of their own members so freely when they've had no issue in the past taking this faction's money or mobilizing them when it suits their purposes sure the name calling and laughing is pretty remarkable i'm curious who else did they talk about on this call well, let's hear what they have to say about the gun industry. Jim, let me ask you a question. What do you, what's the industry going to do? I think the industry will do whatever we ask them to do. Do you think they have a preference, Jim? Is there anybody we ought to be talking to? I talked to Delphi this morning, and he said they, they stand ready to help us orchestrate what is, whatever we want to do. They're just waiting to know. Robert Delphi was then the head of a gun industry trade group. Now, some critics accuse the NRA of being beholden to the gun industry. But here in these tapes, the NRA is saying it's the other way around. Now, much like the gun industry, uh, pro-NRA politicians are also looking to the NRA for guidance. 
Here, LaPierre refers to then-Senate Majority Whip Don Nichols. Well, I'm just, I was talking to Nicholson's office this morning, and what they told me is they're planning on sending them all to school because what they wanted us to do was secretly provide them with talking points. So just to emphasize here, LaPierre is saying that the Republican leader is asking them to secretly provide them notes on what to say. It is so fascinating to listen to these tapes. What do you think these conversations from more than 20 years ago can tell us about the NRA's actions ever since then? Gradually, what we see and what we hear in these tapes is the NRA's playbook emerging, just as America's entering this era of school shootings. The NRA is arguing in these tapes that society, not firearms, is the source of the real problem. And their strategy would really also revolve around skepticism of the press and not wanting to show any signs of weakness. You'll remember after the Parkland shootings when NRA spokesperson Dana Lash said that, quote, the legacy media loves mass shootings. And that's a strategy that the NRA has used for decades. That is NPR investigations correspondent Tim Mack. Thank you, Tim. Thanks a lot. Now, NPR did reach out to the NRA and provided them with transcripts of the audio that we used in this story. In order to protect our source and in keeping with prior practice, we did not provide the actual tape. An NRA spokesperson called this story a, quote, hit piece and complained that they were denied the audio. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, June 15, 2023. So I have been told this is the Catherine Massey Book Club. Seventh installment, Dave Cullen's columbine we are going to get right to it very quickly the audio we heard number one from the may 1999 nra convention that's literally like 10 days after the massacre happened uh that's directly from the convention charlton heston the late charlton heston yes planet of the apes his introduction and then more importantly the female speaker colorado secretary of state vicky buckley black female she spoke at the funeral for Isaiah Shoals and worked with his family afterwards. I thought that was pretty direct commentary about racism, white supremacy and her remarks. Right. She even mentioned the murder of James Byrd Jr., which had just happened one year previously. Also, I had to get that in because Vicki Buckley, that NRA convention was May 1, 1999. Vicki Buckley was dead by July 1999 she died at the age 49 reportedly from a heart attack that's basically about two months from the time she gave that speech next we heard uh, NPR they got those so called secret recordings of how the white people at the NRA were scheming what are we going to do what are we going to say skillful use of words always important I will go ahead and let us get started I will just make sure to, to emphasize Ted Kaczynski passed away this week, the Unabomber. Pipe bombs and all that. He was arrested. He was incarcerated by the end of 1998 in a Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, as was Timothy McVeigh. In fact, they were called Bomber Row, the unit in the Supermax facility where they were, which was 
less than two hours driving distance from Columbine High School. Catherine Massey Book Club. I said it should be Rocky Mountain Boom. Catherine Massey Book Club, audio segment one. 37. Betrayed. Eric needed professional help. His father made that determination within 48 hours of his arrest. Wayne picked up the steno pad that had sat idle for nine months and began filling half a dozen pages. See, psychologist, he wrote. See what's going on. Determine treatment. Wayne gathered names and numbers for several agencies and services and added bulleted items to them. Anger management, life management, professional therapist, mental health center, school counselor, juvenile assessment center, and family adolescent team. Wayne documented several conversations with lawyers. He wrote probation, circled it, and added, take any chances for reformation or diversion. Wayne checked out half a dozen candidates for therapist. Their rates varied from 100 to 150 per hour. He settled on Dr. Kevin Albert, a psychiatrist, and made an appointment for February 16th. Wayne logged page after page of calls to cops, lawyers, and prosecutors working through their options. The juvenile diversion program sounded ideal. A year of counseling and community service, along with fines, fees, and restitution. If Eric completed it successfully and kept clean for an additional year, the robbery would be expunged from his record. But the DA's office had to accept him. Eric told Dr. Albert he had anger problems. Depression was an issue. He had contemplated suicide. He apparently did not mention the bombs he took to the park the previous evening. Dr. Albert started him on Zoloft, a prescription antidepressant. Eric continued meeting with him biweekly, and Wayne and Kathy began occasional sessions as well. At home, the boys received similar punishments. Each was grounded for a month and forbidden contact with the other. Eric also had his computer access revoked. He went to work on his pipe bombs. He lost one, or perhaps left it as a warning or clue. On February 15th, the day before Eric's first appointment with Dr. Albert, someone in the neighborhood stumbled upon his work, a duct-taped PVC pipe in the grass with a red fuse protruding. Kind of an odd sight for a suburban park in Jeffco. The Jeffco cops sent out an investigator from the bomb squad. Sure enough, it was a homemade pipe bomb. Officers didn't find a whole lot of those around here. The investigator defused the bomb and filed a report. Eric and Dylan hid their arrest from friends. They made excuses about their restrictions. Finally, they began to come clean. Eric fessed up to a girl at Blackjack, and word traveled to Nate Dykeman. Nate couldn't believe Dylan had been hiding it from him. "'Is this the reason you can't go out?' Nate asked. Dylan turned red. "'He didn't want to talk about it,' Nate said later. After word leaked, Eric told friends it was the most embarrassing moment of his life. Both boys were humiliated, and Eric was raging mad. Dylan's response was more complex. Three days after his arrest, Dylan pictured himself on the road to happiness with Harriet. He sketched it out in his journal as a two-lane highway with a road sign off one shoulder and a dashed stripe down the center. His road led off to a majestic row of mountains, with a giant heart guiding him onward. 
It's so great to love, he wrote. He was a felon now, but he was ecstatic. He filled half the page with drawings and exclamations. I love her, and she loves me. Anger boiled up with the ecstasy. Dylan was beginning to see it Eric's way. The real people, gods, are slaves to the majority of zombies. But we know and love being superior. Either I'll commit suicide or I'll get with Harriet, and it will be NBK for us. My happiness, her happiness, nothing else matters. Suicide or murder? The pattern solidified. Homicidal thoughts occasionally. Self-destruction on every page. If by love's choice Harriet didn't love me, I'd slit my wrist and blow up Atlanta strapped to my neck, he wrote. Eric had named one of his pipe bombs Atlanta. Wayne Harris kept working the phones. By early March, he secured an evaluation with Andrea Sanchez, a counselor with a juvenile diversion program. Sanchez placed calls to Eric and Dylan to pre-screen them. They passed. She sent a dozen forms and set up appointments. Each boy would come to her office with a parent and the stack of paperwork. Both intake sessions would take place on March 19th. For two months, Wayne Harris worked to get his son into diversion, to keep his record clean. Eric was busy, too. He was detonating his first pipe bombs. He boldly posted the breakthrough on his website. Motherfucker blew big. Flippin' thing was heart-pounding, gut-wrenching, brain-twitching, ground-moving, insanely cool. His brothers haven't found a target yet, though. This time, Eric was producing to kill. Contempt had been the undercurrent in his I hate rants. Now he made it explicit. Morons had nerve to judge him, he said. To call him crazy just for envisioning mass murder? Empty, vacuous morons standing in judgment? If you got a problem with my thoughts, come tell me and I'll kill you, he posted. Dead people don't argue. God damn it, I am pissed. As Eric embraced murder, Dylan retreated. After the arrest, he had the one brief outburst in his journal, and then he dropped all mention of it for nearly a year. Dylan still fretted about this toilet earth, but his focus shifted dramatically toward love. Love. It had been prominent from the first page of his journal, but now, a year in, it grew overwhelming. He emblazoned entire pages with ten-inch hearts, surrounded by choirs of smaller, fluttering hearts. Eric had no use for love. Sex? Maybe. He shared none of Dylan's desires for truth, beauty, or ethereal love. Eric's only internal struggle concerned which stupid bastard was more deserving of his wrath. Eric's dreams changed after his arrest. Human extinction was still his aim, but for the first time he made the leap from observer to enforcer. I will rig up explosives all over a town and detonate each one of them at will after I mow down a whole fucking area full of you snotty-ass, rich, motherfucking, high-strung, godlike, attitude-having, worthless pieces of shit whores, he wrote. He posted this openly on his website. I don't care if I live or die in the shootout, he wrote. All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you pricks as I can. It was too much for Dylan. Kill? Everything? Apparently not. 
He made a stunning move behind Eric's back. He told. He told the worst possible person, Brooks Brown. Brooks knew about the petty vandalism, and his parents saw Eric as a young criminal, but they had no idea how serious it was. On the way to class, Dylan handed Brooks a scrap of paper. Just one line was written on it, a web address. I think you should take a look at this tonight, Dylan said. Okay, anything special? It's Eric's website. You need to see it. And you can't tell Eric I gave it to you. Brooks pulled up the site that night. Eric was threatening to kill people. He threatened to kill Brooks personally in three different places. Dylan leaked the URL to Brooks the day before their admission interviews for the diversion program. If Brooks told his parents, and Dylan knew he told Judy everything, the Browns would go straight to the cops, and Eric would be rejected and imprisoned for a felony. Dylan probably would be, too. He took that chance. Brooks did tell his mom. Randy and Judy called the cops. Jeffco investigators came out that night. They followed up. They filed reports. But they did not alert the DA's office. Eric and Dylan proceeded into diversion. Only one parent was required at the diversion intake meeting. Tom and Sue Klebold both attended. They considered it important. They filled out an eight-page questionnaire about Dylan. He did the same, and then Andrea Sanchez walked them through the results. The Klebolds were in for a few surprises. Dylan copped to five or six drunken bouts, starting at age 15. Was not aware of it at all, until Andrea Sanchez asked the question a few moments ago. His parents wrote, Apparently they were unaware his nickname was Vodka. Dylan claimed he had quit drinking. He didn't like the taste and said it wasn't worth it. He had tried pot, too, and rejected it for the same reasons. His parents were stunned about marijuana, too. Tom and Sue were candid. It was the only ethical course. Dylan is introverted and has grown up isolated, they wrote. He is often angry or sullen, and behaviors seem disrespectful to and intolerant of others. They wrote a line about disrespecting authority figures, crossed it out, and then said that teachers had reported that he didn't listen or take correction well. Eric was more cautious. He revealed just enough to appear confessional. He said he had tasted alcohol three times, had never gotten drunk, and had given it up for good. Exactly what a parent wanted to hear. It was vintage Eric, more believable than abstinence and reassuring to boot. He had faced the temptation already, and the danger had passed. He understood how his parents thought, and in no time he'd read Andrea Sanchez. In their first meeting, he turned an admission into a virtue. He lied about pot, too. He claimed he had no interest. The alcohol admission gave the claim credence. Wayne and Kathy both attended their session as well. Their surprise came in the mental health section. On a checklist of 30 potential problem areas, they marked three boxes, anger, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Eric had told them about those three, and he discussed them with Dr. Albert. He was getting help. Everyone agreed the Zoloft was helping, too. It was common for an adolescent to check several boxes. Eric picked 14. He marked virtually everything related to distrust or aggression. He checked 
jealousy, anxiety, suspiciousness, authority figures, temper, racing thoughts, obsessive thoughts, mood swings, and disorganized thoughts. He skipped suicidal thoughts, but he checked homicidal thoughts. Wayne and Kathy worried about Eric suppressing his anger. They admitted that he would blow up now and then, lashing out verbally or hitting an object. He never tried it in front of his dad, but they'd gotten reports back from work and school. It didn't happen often, but they were concerned. Eric responded well to discipline. They had controlled his behavior, but how could they contain his moods? When he really got mad, Eric said, he would punch a wall. He had thought about suicide, but never seriously, and mostly out of anger. He got angry all the time, he said, at almost anything he didn't like. Eric was seething as he scrawled out his answers, and he practically told them so on the form. The nerve of these lowlifes judging him. He explained how he hated fools telling him what to do. In the interview, he apparently directed his anger at other fools. They fell for it. Eric would howl about it later. The partial confession was his favorite con of all. He could turn over half his cards and still pull off the bluff. He posted his actual thoughts about the legal system on his website at around the same time. My belief is that if I say something, it goes. I am the law. If you don't like it, you die. He described going to some random downtown area in some big city and blowing up and shooting up everything he could. He assured us he would feel no remorse, no sorrow, no shame. Yet there he sat, submitting. He bent to their will. He filled out their degrading form. Laughing on the inside was insufficient. He would make them pay. Sanchez worried about the boy's failure to accept full responsibility. Eric was sticking to his story that the break-in was Dylan's fault. Dylan thought the whole thing was a little overblown. Sanchez noted her reservations, but recommended them for enrollment. The final decision was up to the court. A week later, on March 25th, Eric and Dylan stood before Jeffco Magistrate John DeVita during a joint hearing. Their fathers stood beside them. That impressed DeVita. Most of the juveniles appeared alone or with just a mom. Dads were a good sign, and these dads appeared to be taking control of the situation. DeVita was also impressed by the punishments they had imposed. Good for you, Dad, he said. It sounds to me like you've got the circumstances under control. This has been a rather traumatic experience, Tom Klebold told him. I think it's probably good, a good experience, that they got caught the first time. He'd tell you if there were any more? Yes. He would, actually. DeVita didn't buy it. First time out of the box and you get caught? He asked Eric. I don't believe it. It's a real rare occurrence when somebody gets caught the first time. But he was impressed by the way the boys presented themselves, dressed up, well-behaved, deferential. Yes, Your Honor, and no, Your Honor. They respected the court, and it showed. DeVita pegged Dylan as well. The B's and C's on his report card were a joke. I bet you're an A student, DeVita said, if you put the brain power to the paperwork. DeVita gave them a lecture, then he approved them for diversion. This pair was going to do just fine, he thought. Fourteen months later, after the murders, DeVita lamented how convincing the boys had been. 
What's mind-boggling is the amount of deception, he said, the ease of their deception, the coolness of their deception. Judy and Randy Brown kept calling the cops. They were sure Brooks was in danger. Their other son was so scared he slept with a baseball bat. After two weeks of their pestering, the case was bumped up to investigator John Hicks, who met with Judy. On March 31st, he sat down with two other investigators, Mike Guerra and Glenn Grove, to discuss it. The situation looked pretty bad, bad enough for investigator Guerra to type out a two-page affidavit for a search warrant, duly sworn upon oath. Guerra did good work. In the affidavit, he dramatically outlined all the crucial elements of the case against this kid. He detailed the specificity of Eric's plans, his methods, and his ordinance. He quoted liberally from Eric's website to provide proof. But most important, Guerra drew the connection to physical evidence. A bomb matching those in Eric's descriptions had recently been discovered near his home. The Harris house was to be searched for any literature, notes, or physical material related to the construction of explosives, as well as all email correspondence, presumably to include the website. The affidavit was convincing. It was filed. It was not signed or taken before a judge. It was not acted upon in any way. A plausible explanation for inaction was never provided. Years later, one official said Guerra was drawn away to another case, and when he returned, the affidavit, as written, lacked the timeliness required to take it to a judge. The Browns said that Investigator Hicks also knew about Eric's arrest for the van break-in. There was no indication that he, or anyone from the Sheriff's Department, ever relayed their damning evidence about Eric to the diversion officers. Magistrate DeVita was provided no indication before he approved them for the program. Senior officials from the Sheriff's Department, the DA's office, and the criminal court were unaware of one another's actions concerning Eric. But Eric apparently knew what they were all up to. Eric got wind that the Browns were on to him, so he took his website down for a while. There is no indication he ever learned of Dylan's betrayal. There is no sign that he suspected. Eric was getting serious about his plans now, and he would not risk posting anything about them on the web again. He pulled out a spiral notebook and began a journal. For the next year, he would record his progress toward the attack and thoroughly explain his motives. 38. Martyr She's in the Martyrs' Hall of Fame. Cassie's pastor proclaimed at her funeral. That was not hyperbole. A noted religious scholar predicted Cassie could become the first officially designated Protestant martyr since the 16th century. This is really quite extraordinary, he said. The flames of martyrdom are being fanned by these various preachers who apparently have embellished the story as they have told it. It takes on a life of its own. In the Weekly Standard, J. Bottom compared her to the third-century martyrs Perpetua and Felicity, and the tales of the thousands of early Christians who went joyously to their deaths in the Roman Colosseums. And the response felt like the great awakening of the 18th century, Bottom said. He foresaw a generation of kids rising up to recast our cultural landscape. He later described a national change of heart 
trembling on the cusp of breaking forth. It's an ever-widening faith that the whole pornographic, violent, anarchic disaster of popular American culture will soon be swept away. It was a great story. It gave Brad and Misty tremendous relief. They were due. The enemy had taken on their little girl before, and in the first round, the enemy had won. It had been possession, pure and simple. That's how Misty saw it. The enemy had crept into her house a decade earlier, but remained hidden until the winter of 1996. She discovered his presence just before Christmas. She had just quit her job as a financial analyst at Lockheed Martin in order to be a better, full-time mom. It was a tough transition, and Misty went looking for a Bible for inspiration. She found one in Cassie's room, and she also discovered a stack of letters. They were disturbing. The letters documented a vigorous correspondence between Cassie and a close friend. The friend bitched about a teacher and then suggested, Want to help me murder her? The pages were filled with hardcore sex talk, occult imagery, and magic spells. They hammered a persistent refrain, Kill your parents. Make those scumbags pay for your suffering. Murder is the answer to all of your problems. Misty found only the friend's letters, but they suggested a receptive audience. Blood cocktails and vampires appeared throughout in descriptions and illustrations. A teacher was shown stabbed with butcher knives, lying in her own blood. Figures labeled Ma and Pa were hung by their intestines. Bloody daggers were lodged in their chests. A gravestone was inscribed, Pa and Ma Bernal. My guts are hungry for that weird stuff, one letter said. I fucking need to kill myself. We need to murder your parents. School is a fucking bitch. Kill me with your parents, then kill yourself so you don't go to jail. Misty called Brad, then the sheriff. They waited for Cassie to come home. First, Cassie tried to downplay the letters. Then she got angry. She hated them, she said. She admitted to writing letters in kind. She screamed. She said she would run away. She threatened to kill herself. Reverend Dave McPherson, the youth pastor at West Bowles, counseled Brad and Misty to get tough. Cut her phone, lock the door, pull her out of school, he said. Don't let her out of the house without supervision. That's what they did. They transferred Cassie to a private school. They let her leave the house only for youth group at the church. A bitter struggle followed. She despised us at first, Reverend McPherson said. She would threaten to run away and launch into wild, graphic screaming fits. I'm going to kill myself, Brad recalled her yelling. Do you want to watch me? I'll do it. Just watch. I'll kill myself. I'll put a knife right here, right through my chest. Cassie cut her wrists and bludgeoned her skull. She would lock herself in the bathroom and bash her head against the sink counter. Alone in her bedroom, she beat it against the wall. With her family, she was sullen and spoke in monosyllables. There is no hope for that girl, Reverend McPherson thought. Not our kind of hope. Cassie described the ordeal in a notebook her parents found after her death. I cannot explain in words how much I hurt. I didn't know how to deal with this hurt, so I physically hurt myself. Thoughts of suicide obsessed me for days, but I was too frightened to actually do it, so I compromised by scratching my hands and wrists with a sharp metal file until I bled. It only hurt for the first couple minutes. Then I went numb. 
Afterwards, however, it stung very badly, which I thought I deserved anyway. Suddenly, one night three months later, Cassie shook the enemy free. It was after sunset at a youth group praise and worship service in the Rocky Mountains. Cassie got caught up in the music and suddenly broke down crying. She blubbered hysterically to a friend who couldn't make out half of what she said. When Misty picked her up after the retreat, Cassie rushed up, hugged her, and said, Mom, I've changed. I've totally changed. Brad and Misty were skeptical, but the change took. She left an angry, vengeful, bitter young girl and came back brand new, Reverend Kirsten said. After the conversion, Cassie attended youth ministry enthusiastically, sported a WWJD bracelet, and volunteered for a program that helped ex-convicts in Denver. The following fall, Brad and Misty allowed her to transfer to Columbine High, but she struggled with social pressures right up through her last days. She did not attend prom that last weekend. She did not believe that kids liked her. The day before Cassie was killed, the leaders of her youth group gathered for a staff meeting. One of the items on the agenda was, how do we get Cassie to fit in better? Brad and Misty Bernal were forthcoming about Cassie's history. A few weeks after the massacre, it was widely reported in the media. By then, two other martyr stories had surfaced. Valine Schnur's account was remarkably similar to Cassie's, except for the chronology and the outcome. Val was shot before her exchange about God. Dylan pointed his shotgun under her table and fired several rapid bursts, killing Laura Townsend and injuring Val and another girl. Val was riddled with shotgun pellets up and down her arms and torso. Dylan walked away. Val dropped to her knees, then her hands. Blood was streaming out of thirty-four separate wounds. Oh, my God, oh, my God, don't let me die, she prayed. Dylan turned around. This was too rich. God? Do you believe in God? She wavered. Maybe she should have kept her mouth shut. No, she would rather say it. Yes, I believe in God. Why? Because I believe, and my parents brought me up that way. Dylan reloaded, but something distracted him. He walked off. Val crawled for shelter. Once she made it out, Val was loaded into an ambulance, transported to St. Anthony's, and rushed into surgery. Her parents, Mark and Sherry, were waiting for her when she came to. Val started blurting out what had happened almost immediately. She made a full recovery, and her story never varied. Numerous witnesses corroborated her account. Val's story emerged at the same time as Cassie's, the afternoon of the attack. It took a week longer to reach the media. It never caused much of a ripple there. If the timing had been different, Val might have been an evangelical hero, the brave girl who felt the brunt of a shotgun blast and still stood up for her Redeemer. She proclaimed her faith, and He saved her. What a message of hope that would have been! And the hero would have been alive to spread the good news. It didn't work out that way. Val was seen more often as a usurper. People thought I was a copycat, she said. They thought I was just following the bandwagon. A lot of people didn't believe my story. The bigger Cassie's fame grew, the more Val was rejected. An evangelical youth rally was particularly disturbing. She told her story to a crowd gathered to honor Cassie and Rachel Scott. She got a very cold reception.
No one really comes out and says that never happened, she said. They just skirt around the issue, like they ask, Are you sure that's how it happened? Or could your faith really be that strong? Val's parents were supportive, but it wore on her. You know, it gets frustrating, she said, because you know in your heart where you were and what you said, and then people doubt you, and that's what bothers me the most. Cassie's fame grew. Reverend Kirsten embarked on a national speaking tour to spread the good news. Pack as many onto the ark as possible, he said. By summer's end, the local youth group Revival Generation had blossomed from a few local chapters to an organization with offices in all 50 states. The organizer put on national touring shows with Columbine High survivors. Cassie's name sent teenage girls storming to the stage. Fame could be intoxicating. Brad and Misty were already celebrities in their world, blessed parents of the martyr. They resisted the temptation and carried on as humbly as before. For some time, Brad Bernal had been a greeter at Sunday worship services at West Bowles. He returned to the volunteer role almost immediately after Cassie's funeral. He offered a smile with each handshake. The smiles looked sincere, but his pain bled through. In early May, the church brought in a grief expert and conducted a group counseling session open to anyone in the struggling community. Misty arrived first. Brad would be a little late, she said. He was having a really bad day. He had not gone into Cassie's room since she died, but tonight he was going in there alone. Brad showed up, shaken. He downplayed his trouble and offered to help. Misty did the same. Emily Wyant watched in disbelief as the story mushroomed. "'Why are they saying that?' she asked her mother. Emily had been under the table with Cassie. They were facing each other. Emily was looking into Cassie's eyes when Eric fired his shotgun. Emily knew exactly what had happened. Emily was supposed to be in science class when the shooting happened. But they had a test scheduled, and because she had missed class the day before, she wasn't ready.' Her teacher sent her down to the library to look over her notes. She pulled up a seat by the window at a table with just one girl, Cassie Bernal, who was studying Macbeth. They heard some commotion outside, and some kids came to the window to check it out, but it dissipated. Emily stood up for a look, saw a kid running across the soccer field, and sat down, returning to her notes. A few minutes later, Patty Nielsen ran in screaming and ordered everyone to get down. Cassie and Emily got under the table and tried to barricade themselves in by pulling some chairs around their tiny perimeter. That made them feel a little safer. Cassie crouched by the window side of the table, looking in toward the room, and Emily got down at the other end, facing Cassie two feet away. They could keep in contact with each other that way and collectively maintain a view of the whole room. The chairs created a lot of blind spots, but the girls were not about to move them. That was the only protection they had. Emily heard shots coming from down the hallway, one at a time, not in bursts. They were getting closer. The doors opened. She heard them come in. They were shooting, talking back and forth, and shouting stuff like, Who wants to be killed next? Emily looked over her shoulder to watch. She saw a kid near the counter jump or go down. The killers walked around a lot, taunting and shooting, and Emily got a good look at them. She had never noticed them before. She was a sophomore. 
but was sure she could pick them out again if she ever saw them again. The girls whispered back and forth, Dear God, dear God, why is this happening? Cassie asked, I just want to go home. I know, Emily answered. We all want to get out of here. Between exchanges, Cassie prayed very quietly. Eric and Dylan passed by several times, but Emily never expected one of them to come under the table and shoot. Eric stopped at their table, at Cassie's end. Emily could see his legs and his boots, pointing directly at the right side of Cassie's face. Cassie didn't turn. Emily didn't have to. She was facing perpendicular to Eric's stance, so she could look straight at Cassie and see Eric just to her left at the same time. Eric slammed his hand on the table, then squatted halfway down for a look. Peekaboo, he said. Eric poked his shotgun under the table rim as he came down. He didn't pause long, or even stoop down far enough for Emily to see his face. She saw the sawed-off gun barrel. The opening was huge. She looked into Cassie's brown eyes. Cassie was still praying. There was no time for words between them. Eric shot Cassie in the head. Everything was muffled then. The blast was so loud, it temporarily blew out most of Emily's hearing. The fire alarm had been unbearably loud, but now she could barely hear it. She could see the light flashing out in the hallway. Eric's legs turned. Bree Pasquale was sitting there, right out in the open a few steps away, beside the next table over. It had been jammed with kids when she got there. She couldn't fit, so she sat down next to it on the floor. Bree was a bit farther from Cassie than Emily, the next closest person, but she had a wider view. She had also seen Eric walk up with the shotgun in his right hand, slap Cassie's tabletop twice with his left, and say, Peekaboo. He squatted down, balancing on the balls of his feet, still holding onto the tabletop with his free hand. Cassie looked desperate, holding her hands up against the sides of her face. Eric poked the shotgun under and fired. Not a word. Eric was sloppy with that shot, a one-hander in an awkward half-squat. The shotgun kicked back, and the butt nailed him in the face. He broke his nose sometime during the attack, and that's the moment investigators believe it happened. Eric had his back to Bree, so she couldn't see the gun hit his nose. But she watched him yank back on the pump handle and eject the red shell casing. It dropped to the floor. She looked under the table. Cassie was down, blood soaking into the shoulder of her light green shirt. Emily appeared unhurt. Bree was exposed, just a few feet from Eric, but she couldn't take it anymore. She lay down and asked the boy beside her, who was just barely under the table, to hold her hand. He did. Bree was terrified. She did not take her eyes off Eric. He stood up after ejecting the round and turned to face her. He took a step or two toward her, squatted down again, and laid the shotgun across his thighs. Blood was pouring out of his nostrils. I hit myself in the face, he yelled. He was looking at her, but calling out to Dylan. Eric took hold of the gun again and pointed it in Bree's direction. He waved it back and forth in a sweeping motion. He could shoot anyone he wanted, and it came to rest on her. That's when Dylan's gun went off. Bree heard him laugh and make a joke about what he had done. When she looked back at Eric, he was staring her straight in the face. "'Do you want to die?' Eric asked. "'No,' he asked once more. "'No, no, 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 no!' She pleaded for him to spare her, and Eric seemed to enjoy that. The exchange went on and on. He kept the gun right to her head the whole time. "'Don't shoot me,' she said. "'I don't want to die.' Finally, Eric let out a big laugh. 
Everyone is going to die, he told her. Shoot her, Dylan yelled. No, Eric replied. We're going to blow up the school anyway. Then something distracted him. He walked away and continued killing. Bree looked back at Cassie's table. The other girl, Emily, was on her knees now, still facing Cassie's crumpled body, blood everywhere. She looked scared as hell. How could she tell? An investigator asked Bree later. The girl was biting her hands, she said. Bree kept an eye on that girl. When the explosions moved out into the hallway, Bree figured the killers had gone, and she called out to the girl to come join her group. Emily couldn't hear much, so Bree started waving her hands. Emily saw her finally and crawled over. She was not about to stand up. She sat next to Bree and leaned against some bookshelves. Time got blurry for Emily then. Later, she couldn't recall how long she'd sat there. Emily and Bree knew Cassie never got a chance to speak. They gave detailed accounts to investigators. Bree's ran fifteen pages, single-spaced, but their police reports would remain sealed for a year and a half. The 911 tape proved conclusively that they were correct. Audio of the murders was played for families, but withheld from the public as too gruesome. Emily and Bree waited for the truth to come out. Emily Wyant was sad. She went to counseling every day. April 20th had been horrible, and now she was saddled with a moral dilemma. She did not want to hurt the Bernals, nor did she want to embarrass herself by shattering Cassie's myth. The whole thing had gotten so big so fast. But by keeping quiet, Emily felt she was contributing to a lie. She was in a tough position, her mother Cindy said later. Emily had told the cops, but they were not sharing much with the media anymore. Definitely not that bombshell. Emily wanted to go public. Her parents were afraid. The martyrdom had turned into a religious movement. Taking that on could be risky. She didn't know the ramifications that could come afterwards, Cindy said. She was just thinking about, I want to tell the truth. Her parents were torn, too. They wanted the truth to come out, but not at the expense of their daughter. Emily had already faced more than any child should. This might be too much. Don't do anything drastic, her parents advised. It's a wonderful memory for Cassie's family, Cindy told her. Let's not aggravate anything. In early May, the phone rang. It was the Rocky Mountain News. Dan Lusiter was one of the best investigative reporters in the city, and he was sorting out exactly what happened in the library. They were tracking down all the library survivors, and most were cooperating. Emily's parents were wary. Her situation was different. The reporters showed the Wyants some of the maps and timelines they were building. The family was impressed. The team seemed conscientious, and their work was thorough and detailed. The family agreed to talk. Emily would tell her story, and the Rocky could quote her, but not identify her by name. We didn't want her to be some national scoundrel, Cindy said. After the interview, Emily was glad she had participated. What a relief to get that off her chest. She waited for the story. The Rocky editors felt they needed more. This could get ugly. They wanted somebody on the record. Emily kept waiting. Her frustration grew. The Rocky Mountain News was waiting, too. They had conducted their investigation and had an incredible story to tell. Much of the public perception about Columbine was wrong. 
They had the truth. They were going to debunk all myths, including jocks, goths, the TCM, and Cassie's murder. All they needed was a news peg. The story would travel much farther if they timed it right. They were waiting for Jeffco to finish its final report. A week or two before the release, the Rocky planned to stun the public with surprising revelations. It was a good strategy. Misty Bernal had been hit hard. Telling Cassie's story made it more bearable. Someone suggested a book. Reverend McPherson introduced her to an editor at the tiny Christian publisher Plough. Plough had published the book Cassie had been reading before she died, and Misty liked what she had seen of the company. Misty was apprehensive at first. Profiting off Cassie was the last thing on her mind, but she had two terrific stories to tell. Cassie's long fight for spiritual survival would be the primary focus, and her gunpoint proclamation would provide the hook. A deal was struck in late May. It would be called, She Said Yes, The Unlikely Martyrdom of Cassie Bernal. The family had no idea the Rocky had discovered that title was untrue. Misty, who had gone back to work at Lockheed Martin as a statistician, would take a leave of absence to write the story. To reduce expenses, Misty agreed to forego an advance in lieu of a higher royalty rate. Plough also agreed to set up a charity in Cassie's name for some of its proceeds. Plough Publishing foresaw its first bestseller. It planned a first printing of 100,000 copies, more than seven times larger than its previous record. On May 25th, something unexpected happened. Police opened the school up so parents of the library victims could walk through the scene. This served two functions. Victims could face the crime scene with their loved ones, and revisiting the room might jar loose memories or clarify confusion. Three senior investigators stood by to answer questions and observe. Craig Scott, who had initiated the Cassie story, came through with several family members. He stopped where he had hidden and retold his story to his dad. A senior detective listened. Craig had sat extremely close to Cassie, just one table away, facing hers. But when he described her murder, he pointed in the opposite direction. It happened at one of the two tables near the interior, he said, which was exactly where Val had been. When the detective said Cassie had not been in that area, Craig insisted. He pointed to the closest tables to Val's and said, Well, she was up there then. No, the detective said. Craig got agitated. She was somewhere over there, he said. He pointed again toward Val's table. I know that for a fact. Detectives explained the mistake. Craig got sick. The detective walked him out, and Craig sat down in the empty corridor to collect himself. He apologized for getting ill. He was okay now but he would wait for his family out there. He was not going back into that library. Friends of the Bernals said Brad was struggling much more than his wife. It was visible in the way he carried himself into worship on Sunday mornings. Brad looked broken. Misty took great solace in the book she was writing. It gave her purpose. It gave meaning to Cassie's death. Misty had put herself in God's hands, and he had handed her a mission. She would bring his message to a whole new audience. Her book would glorify her daughter and her God.
Investigators heard about the book deal. They decided that they owed it to Misty to alert her to the truth. In June, lead investigator Kate Batten and another detective went to see her. Misty described the meeting this way. They said, Don't stop doing the book. We just wanted to let you know that there are differing accounts coming out of the library. Batten said she encouraged Misty to continue with the book, but without the martyr incident. Cassie's transformational story sounded wonderful. Batten said she made the details of Cassie's murder clear and later played the 911 tape for Brad and Misty. Misty and her plow editor, Chris Zimmerman, were concerned. They went back to their witnesses. Three witnesses stuck by the story that it was Cassie. Good enough. The martyr scene was going to be a small part of the book anyway. Misty wanted to focus on Cassie overcoming her own demons. We wanted people to know Cassie was an average teenager who struggled with her weight and worried about boys and wasn't ever a living saint, she said. Misty lived up to her word. That was the book she wrote. She described Cassie as selfish and stubborn on occasion, known to behave like a spoiled two-year-old. Misty also agreed to run a disclaimer opposite the table of contents. It referred to varying recollections and stated that the precise chronology, including the exact details of Cassie's death, may never be known. Emily Wyant was getting more apprehensive. Her parents continued urging caution. They had a dinner with the Bernals. Brad and Misty asked Emily if she'd heard the exchange. Emily was a bit sheepish about answering, but she said no. Cindy Wyatt felt that Emily had made herself clear, but afterward the Bernals recalled no revelation. Cindy later surmised that they'd taken Emily's response to mean she didn't remember anything. Val Schnorr's family was uneasy, too. Investigators had briefed them on the evidence and told them about Craig Scott's discovery in the library. Val and her parents wondered which was worse, hurting the Bernals or keeping quiet. They also went to dinner with the Bernals. Everyone felt better after that. Brad and Misty seemed sincere and utterly distraught with pain. So much sadness, Mark Schnorr said. Clearly the book was Misty's way of healing. The Schnorrs were less understanding with the publisher. The editor attended the dinner, and Sherry asked him to slow down. Her husband followed up with an email. If you go ahead and publish the book, just be careful, he wrote. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. He suggested that Plough delay publication until the authorities issued their report. Plough declined. In July, the Wall Street Journal ran a prominent story titled Marketing a Columbine Martyr. The publishing house was obscure, but Zimmerman had called in a team of heavy hitters. For public relations, the firm hired the New York team that had handled Monica Lewinsky's book. Publication was two months away, and Misty had already been booked for the Today Show and 2020. The William Morris Agency was shopping the film rights around. A movie was never made. An agent there had sold book club rights to a unit of Random House. He said he was marketing virtually everything you can exploit, and I mean that in a positive way. On the WB. Mommy. Boy, <laughs> oh. I can't make fun of that fucking frog. Fuck that frog.
They don't be doing that on white networks as soon as a black network. And the number W B. I like chicken. <laughs> the most racist shit ever. Welcome back, niggers. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team fucking here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here, nigga. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here, nigga. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team fucking here. Catherine Massey Book Club context of white supremacy 14 years in we never play music for no reason before we got to old Drake Cowbell we did hear Dave Chappelle WB Network last week old Dave Cullen suspected race soldier Dave Cullen he was telling us about uh, Eric Harris's list of hates, which included the WB Network, and old ignorant Gus was too lame to remember the WB Network played a lot of Negro tunes during the 1990s. Black, all that black content. That's what Dave Chappelle was talking about. And they got Michigan J Frog. People remember that? Young people probably don't remember that, thank God, but. Woo. Coded for niggers right there. Anyway, so why are we hearing Drake right now? Old Ling, Dave Cullen, what is he leaving out? They got all these journals and such. Let's see what Eric Harris told us. Eric Harris said, humans don't change that much. They only get better technology to do their work. He didn't say ours. Is he not human? What you trying to tell us, old Eric Harris? You an alien or something? Anyway. People always say we shouldn't be racist. Why not? Blacks are different. Like it or not, they are. They just started out on the bottom. So why not keep them there? It took them centuries to convince us that they are equal, but they still use their color as an excuse or they just discriminate against us we didn't say against discriminate us because we are white see I said this little no count race soldier is barely literate uh, fuck you we should ship your black asses back to Africa where you came from we brought you here and we will take you back America equals white Eric Harris, May 20, 1998. Put that in the book, Dave Cullen. Make it plain what was motivating these little white race soldiers. And even before we get to the folks, Catherine Massey Book Club, we'll get to audio second, audio segment two, once we get our commentary and everything. Our timing is so the metronome. Catherine Massey Book Club, Cows in General. Not only did the Denver Nuggets 
win their first championship while we are reading this book they had the parade today and guess what make my day how you have a gun violence incident at the NBA championship parade have Nikola Jokic and folks running oh my god they're trying to kill us at the week on the chip man come on make my day but the other Ted Kaczynski the Unabomber died on Saturday now this is Gus T you do not have a lame person facilitating the book club and I'm calling out Dave Cullen again I gotta just look at this as willful omission way back when Miss or Mommy C non Clemson dad woke baby they said man we didn't pay attention to Columbine either we listened to the book club we listened to the first installment two times so crazy listening to these young white killers and oh my goodness they tried to blow up the school and even they got these old diversion bombs they got the other set of bombs and they're trying to blow up the first responders I didn't even know that they repeated that well they didn't repeat it but they made this commentary on the compensatory call-in I neglected to address that on the book club to say that having one initial act of violence explosion whatever generally a bombing and then you have a second device that's time to go off maybe an hour later so that you get all the first responders what I said was that's Eric Rudolph who is Eric Rudolph that's the white supremacist Olympic Park bomber 1996 three years before who was not even captured until after Columbine happened but he bombed the Atlanta Olympics and many other locations in the south Alabama but that was him his M.O. bomb a location and then have a second device so when the police fire department all those folks come bam you get them too Eric Rudolph we got to hold him now already said I got it either side if you say that they they carried out this attack on April 20 that's Hitler's birthday Sig Heil you say hey this was supposed to happen on April 19 LeBron James block I got this both sides that's Timothy McVeigh really I got that whole week I already told you that whole week Waco the Boston Marathon bombing really the sinking of the Titanic how much do you want that whole week is lit up so it doesn't even matter that week of April is marked on the calendar April 19 that's Timothy McVeigh Oklahoma City bombing Turner Diaries racist white supremacists even pause for Buffalo one more time Buffalo native Timothy McVeigh Hold that one. Eric Rudolph. Tim McVeigh. Waco, I just said. Now, Unabomber just died. 20 years of bombing, folks. Pipe, I even had an audio segment to play. Did you know that Ted Kaczynski attempted to have a sex change? 
wanted to be a woman, the Unabomber. I said they should put his picture up for the pride events, right? Oh, Unabomber, if he had been accepted, maybe we wouldn't have had all that carnage, maybe. I'm talking foolish. Okay, not really. So, Kaczynski, genius, bad with girls, so bad he wanted to get a sex change. Super duper smart, godly, wrote my manifesto, childhood bombing things, being out in nature. Matter of fact, I just said the Freemasons. Didn't we hear about that? The Montana Freemasons? That was one of, I think, the agent Fusilier had worked on that case. And I said, dang, well, the Montana Freemasons. Oh, that's Ted Mick, or that's Ted Kaczynski. Get my bombers correct. That's where Ted Kaczynski was out. His bomb factory was in Montana. That's where they had to go and arrest him at. Operating during the same period. In fact, Timothy McVeigh bombed the OKC Federal Building in April 1995. Tim or Ted Kaczynski mail bombed the same month. FBI officials said, dang, are they competing with each other? I'm a, I'll bomb you. No, I'm a, I'll bomb you. I'm the real white bomb. No, I'm the bomber man. already told you they did the diversion bomb Eric Rudolph already told you both sides if it's April 19 that was the planned attack they said we read in the book they wanted to kill more people than Tim McVeigh Reb and Vodka we gonna outdo them we gonna outdo old Tim McVeigh you don't, you don't do it right we gonna kill 500 we gonna blow up the whole school where did Tim McVeigh end up at incarcerated Florence Colorado where did Ted Kaczynski end up incarcerated Supermax facility Florence Colorado eventually where did Eric Rudolph end up at Supermax facility in Florence Colorado now how far is Florence Colorado from Littleton less than two hour drive all of that when he says this was a failed bombing it should be made really clear the environment of this failed bombing of the 90s when you got white bombers all over the country causing all of this mayhem and at least two of them are white supremacists that's not even nobody debates that of course Eric Rudolph of course Tim McVeigh race soldiers that's what they do they call Tim McVeigh the echo terrorist that's what they say inspired a whole generation of race soldiers we gotta keep this the woods I'm a racist man I need a place to put my cabin be away from the niggers for a little while all of that should have been connected and in fact Tim McVeigh Ted Kaczynski got to get those names correct they were in Colorado State by the end of 1998 these were huge cases I would submit I took only one case bumped OJ Simpson off the front page 1995 Tim McVeigh and that bombing these were huge cases 
these young fellas, they had to see all of this. They were heavily influenced. The Olympic Park bombing, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, Tim Mc... They were heavily influenced by these race soldier white bombers. I did not know that, and I don't hear people talk about... Nobody talks about Colorado as failed bombing, much less... This was a failed bombing that should be linked to Tim McVeigh, Ted Kaczynski, Eric Rudolph. This is all the same ilk. And in fact, you see them competing with each other. Who's going to kill more people? What does it mean to be white? dot connecting Dr. Welsing talked about that dot connecting is it that ignorant to think these two were out making bombs that they wouldn't pay attention to the white people who were known notorious competing with each other to bomb people and be known as the bomber man champion what does it mean to be white if that doesn't make sense let me know if you don't think McVeigh Kaczynski being in Colorado State by the end of 98 if you don't think all that had any influence if that doesn't make sense why they would go and try and bomb a school let me know but I'm submitting Cullen should have included that detail make it plain you got access to way more data than we do you were there at the time you could have went to see old Tim McVeigh ask him some questions Ted Kaczynski asking oh all the way through it's not even just Ted Kaczynski went to get a sex change what I said hybristophilia the University of Michigan they got boxes of love letters perfume scented that white women sent Unabomber Ted Kaczynski heard all of that before now that we studied Columbine the number is 605 313 5164 the code 564 943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate started from the bottom indeed the email until justice at gmail.com uh, let's see we have a number of emails and such we will nap let folks get their thoughts I'll read one email and then we'll nap folks with questions thoughts on the text until justice at gmail.com let's see Email number one, victim, I think our victim who wrote us last week, she had the theory that Dave Cullen uh, might be attracted to Eric Harris the way that he presents him in the text. I guess we can keep that in mind as we keep that in mind as we continue. Um, other individuals have come to the same conclusion in fact people who read this book back when it first came out came to the same conclusion nah. okay 
folks who tuned in with thoughts on the book. This said uh, person who wrote, I almost said caller, the person who wrote in. She writes, uh, Hi, Gus and callers. My thoughts on last week's book club session. I agree with the callers that the priest's story of Casey saying yes to marrying God is creepy at best. I hope that there was was an investigation of that man after those comments. Hmm. Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll look. We'll see. We'll look. Uh, number two, no. <clears throat> I don't believe Dylan and Eric's graves would have been desecrated. Yes, people objected to them being memorialized as victims alongside the real victims, but that is not the same as desecrating their actual grave sites. I agree wholeheartedly. Again, I cannot imagine any. They were sending love letters to the Unabomber. Number three, can someone please explain how, excuse me, number three, can someone please explain how Sue Klebold, the mother of a psychotic mass murderer, was given a say in whether her son's murder diaries were released? Question, she must be as narcissistic as he was. Clearly, she has no shame, remorse, or consideration for the victims. Doesn't she? doesn't sound like the behavior of someone who is treated as a figure of hate because of her son's barbarous crimes seems to me she has a lot of power I would def the last part all of that I agree wholeheartedly you say now uh, consideration for the victims didn't Dave tell us she sat down I might be hopping ahead I might be hopping ahead let me let me hush because I might be hopping ahead I will hush we'll come back to the other part about the victims and ask again I might be hopping ahead though number four where did Dylan and Eric get the money to buy the weapons to carry out the attack not to mention funding the years worth of planning and practice question mark now he does say say that they uh, have the blackjack pizza job what a name right Welsing moment they have the blackjack pizza job and I think he told us that they picked up some extra shifts so that they could get more money for their firearms and all the rest they also are in a pretty well to do uh, white neighborhood it's not like their family is broke and struggling so I suspect it probably wouldn't be that difficult uh, for these two white boys uh, with jobs where they're making some money anyway they have like BMWs and such uh, it wouldn't be too difficult for them to squirrel away money if, particularly if you know you're going to do this a year out to start squirreling away money and allowance and whatever else you get Christmas if you get money there and that sort of thing birthdays that sort of thing where you could probably pretty easily amass what do you think $2,000 I would think between the two of them. yeah I think you, I think two white boys and he said that they had the uh, Eric Harris may have had some sort of credit card scam as well uh, he mentioned that Dave Cullen as well. I think that was last week or maybe the week before. He said he, it might have been he had some sort of credit ca- credit card scheme also. So, you know, easy for white people to steal and get money. Number six, I refuse to believe Dylan's parents did not see him drunk or smell alcohol on him at any time. Vodka is a strong drink. There is no way he would not have been inebriated in their home. Well, we heard that again today. She said she was writing from last week 
in the diversion program today, uh, they said that uh, Dylan filled out the form and said that, you know, he'd been drinking several times and that, Psst, what? Stunt? What? His nickname's what? 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 <laughs> now, that, I highlighted, I'm hopping ahead, but for me, that was super important because if you're going to come back a year later, we get to the school massacre and say the same thing. I'm ignorant. <gasps> what? Ah, what? Basement tape? What? Trent? What? Bomb? What? What? If you're going to come back and say all that, then you really, I mean, you cannot let me hear that you, okay, so a year previously, it was also, what, vodka, what, breaking in the mouth, what, who, what, come on, come on, come on, <laughs> like, no, 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 same thing I said before, it, and what really crystallized, I mean, I was convinced before, but I mean, now that I know this, like, oh, man, so you just, every time you do the same thing the white guests do on the brother, like, what? In front of, oh, no, Gus, brother, I'm still, I don't know nothing about no racism. What? What? Vodka? No, I don't know nothing about that. Not, okay. Anyway, I thought today, can you all imagine, like in any universe, any of this, if Dylan and Eric or Jamal and Leroy like in any universe can you imagine this story I laughed until I fell on my knees thinking about the absurdity of that today any aspect of it like if these Leroy Jamal, diversion program. Hmm. You've been breaking in vans. Hmm. 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 Oh no, 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 no. Reject it. Nope. Nope. No. <laughs> Don't let. Nope. Nope. That. That. We got to nip this in the bud. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And the school, because they had been hacking the school computer and all the rest of it. Like the bomb alone. The bomb alone. It's no way in the Christ this happens. If these are two Negro males, much less they do manage to carry all this out. I cannot imagine, but let's say they do. Sue Klebo is not writing a book, whatever name we want it, Lakeisha, Jamal's mother. She is not writing no book. They are going to jail, period. Now, you want to talk about parents hated? Imagine Sue Klebo as a worthless welfare queen, black mother you want to talk about gravesite desecrated those niggers are going to jail and I mean the parent Lakeisha if she's Jamal's mother they don't have dad so you know whatever to Jamal's dad but Leroy Jamal's mother they are going to jail it's no way in the Christ one of their parents gets to write a book do you think it, I'm going to end right here Imagine the world. Two black boys. Extra black. What do you say in uh, Negroes with kinky? Extra, extra black. Blacky black. Crispy black. They go and kill 13 children. We're going to do the same thing they did. Go kill 13 children, 12 of them white. Do exactly what they did. They were going to plan to blow the whole school up, in fact. There is no way 
in the Christ. You have a term called Columbiner. We don't have all these movies. Everybody's going into it. We probably don't even have Dave Cullen's book. And Sue's going to jail. Number six, the author goes to great lengths to minimize the crimes of the friends and acquaintances of Eric and Dylan. Not only does the author present Eric and Dylan as victims, the lying angels, genius friends are presented as innocent or just scared after admitting to helping them illegally purchase weapons and other paraphernalia used in their crimes to lying about what they knew about what Eric and Dylan were up to. Same thing if they had Nigra. Robin Anderson, black female. You helped Jamal and Leroy do this. Number seven. The author spends a lot of time talking about the unreliability of eyewitnesses to how the brain can be affected by traumatic experiences before relaying how many times the police had to probe Christie to get her to tell the truth. I think this was a deliberate act of deception on the author's parts. Many of those. The girl was an accomplished and brazen liar. Mm. Why was she not charged for withholding information on a crime? That's a good question. Hmm. Seemed that would apply to a lot of folks who kind of, you know, withheld or didn't give all truthful I think they I think he did say that they didn't want to discourage people from coming forward. I think he mentioned that last week. They didn't want to discourage people from coming forward with with uh information, so they kind of didn't go as I guess what would we say they were not as stringent with prosecuting about this to deter people from withholding information. Uh eight Dylan I believe Dylan was gay and in love with Zach. I said we said that last week. You sound like a jilted uh lover, right? Uh the Harriet story was a lie he was trying to convince himself of the author also said Eric also said he and Eric were not part of the trench coat mafia Dylan had a trench coat and seems to be bisexual seems to me he could have been a member uh, his dad thought he was a member hmm? uh, number nine the 23 year old having sex with Eric should have been also been prosecuted she knew she was underage she is another similarity with the absolute madness book how often are older female how often is older female abuse of young boys happening quite a bit Dr. Curry talks about that that would be another pause because she's talking about Brenda Parker uh, this white woman with Eric Harris that is not accurate at minimum she is not credible uh, and this is in the police reports. They interviewed her. You can go get the police reports and all. It's like 11,000 pages, lots of documents, lots if you want to read. Uh, but that, I think even Dave Cullen, and I may be an error about this, I think Dave Cullen has acknowledged that this is not accurate. Um, it's in the, di- in fact, in my view, this was debunked by the time he wrote his book. So I have like a side eye that this even made it in, but this is not credible uh this probably did not happen at all uh they even have evidence of the female that she's referencing brenda parker being online and telling people that she was supposed to be a part of the attack and chickened out and this other and of course the police see this they go talk to her and all this and not credible at all so this probably didn't even happen and shame like i said shame on dave cullen because 
that was already known by 2009 when this book was published. So why is that even here? And even it fits with the pattern. Several folks have read this book and said, man, you are really doing it up with this Eric and trying to make him seem so cool. Like he has all these girls and things. This is not true. This is not based on evidence. The, both of these guys died virgins. What did I say about Tim, uh, Ted Kaczynski? Hmm? Hmm. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, anyway, number 10, uh, finally, the author continuously talks about the bright futures of the young people who attended Columbine, including Eric and Dylan, who had a crime record that should have sent them to prison. Say it twice. It's found a bomb. Seems to me white people have no reason to end up sleeping on the streets or living in poverty. There is always a safety net. Talk about it. Uh, and and even that's what I mean. Imagine. Jamal Leroy they find a bomb and it's attributed to you they never even search your house are you out of your flipping mind what what and then they want to tell you white privilege what what I'm so glad we read this because man we haven't even finished the book yet. I haven't even finished reading the other books. We have other guests to come and talk to us about all this as well. Man, I have no idea. When they say like red flags or, you know, a signal, I wish we had known more. Like, Jesus Christ. I mean, so Eric Harris, he left the bomb outside that was found and his parents found a bomb. So you got two different people who have found explosive devices connected to one of the participants you can't even get a room search and he's got a criminal record a felony (sighs) other than I thought today so what would they have had to do to get intervention police to come search their room somebody said hey man these folks are dangerous we need to do something about this red and vodka we got something got to be done what would they have had to do like the only thing I could think of was they would have had to have like shirts or a billboard that said we're going to bomb the school and kill everybody on April 19th or the 20th and yeah I don't even know what to add we plan to bomb the school kill everybody here April 19th or 20th we'll let you know an exact date as soon as possible no cap and just wait and, and hope that someone say like I don't think that oh and put that that was the other part I was saying no cap P.S. this is not a prank underline bold face print not a prank and hope that some of them you know this maybe we should take this serious because they said no cap and it's not a prank uh they said the night. Oh, that's Tim McVeigh. Yes, we will take this. Seat. Yes, thank you for that. Other than that, I really don't know what else they. You know, what more do you need to go and? If Jamal and Leroy had done half of this, they would have been under the jail. It is mind-boggling. What does it mean to be when Fuller? What do you say? By the time you're 15, right there. There you go. There you go, right there. 17, 18 years old, you already see. They already got it. What it means to be white. They got it. 
Let's see. Uh, we have many emails. I'll check kind of double time, see if folks are getting their thoughts together and nab emails as we go. Let's see. Caller at three four three eight should be with us. We'll do call and email alternate maybe. Three four three eight should be with us. Yep, yes, sir. This this uh whole book is uh basically just showing that uh <laughs> they're just master deceivers. Um everything about the book is just about whole deception. Um Dylan and Eric has the way they've been able to get away with all their crimes throughout their uh childhoods is <laughs> pretty uh interesting. Um has everybody been talking um previously uh on the previous weeks uh the book this um this book is like they don't need to come out with a movie like this is this is the movie right here this book um just the way it's been read it's like they it's like a movie it's it's action-packed it's got a lot of details of what's going on um another observation i was making was uh the martyr hall of fame (laughs) i thought that was an interesting uh, phrase um just seeing how Cassie was uh, a lot of her uh, shortcomings that she had going on in her life uh, was pretty interesting. Um, they, the religion of white supremacy is basically what I was getting out of all of that. Um, uh, the, the, another observation was uh, Brad and Misty. They were the blessed parents of the martyr. Those are just a few observations I, I made up uh this the this little reading here. Um I, um this is a good book. Um I appreciate all the callers' observations throughout the week. Uh I listen up to the book club every week. Um it's a great uh it's a great tool for us to um learn. Um I appreciate you Gus. Uh thank you to all the callers and have a good night. Much obliged, sir. I get before you uh mute or or depart uh the the portion about the bombing does that make sense because he really doesn't connect these white killers their attempt to bomb this school to hey this is the whole milieu of the 90s uh the unabomber eric rudolph and the olympic park bombing and tim mcveigh they even picked tim mcveigh august 19th to do the bombing does that make sense all of this you know and, and they all ended up in colorado two of them by the end of 98 does that make logical sense why i'm saying all that should be super important in how we process this oh yeah no no doubt uh this this yeah the bombing is it's yeah, it's all together they um it seems like you like you said this they were inspired by Timothy McVeigh by all the bombings. Um, I believe this book right here and uh, all these other studies we've had, um, I believe Peyton Ginger was uh, inspired by Timothy McVeigh. That's why he went to Buffalo. So, yeah, I do. I do believe it's connected. Much obliged, sir. Just making sure I'm not talking crazy. Um, Timothy McVeigh is Buffalo. <laughs> um Oh my God! Woo! Dylan Klebold is not in this book. That's another one. The omissions in this book are amazing, or not 
amazing, glaring, egregious, could be acts of white supremacy, you know, the way that he's presenting us this information, what's included, what's not. But Dylan Klebold, they wrote term papers on Nazis. Dylan Klebold had an outline to write a term paper on Charles Manson, the motives and what was it? The motives and thinking, I think it was the motives and ideology of Charles Manson and serial killer. That's another one. He said serial killers. I don't know if he actually got to write this paper. I have to go back through the notes. It's thousands of pages of documents to go back and see if he actually wrote this. But for this period of time, if he wrote about serial killers, I would bet all the money in the world. Jeffrey Dahmer would be included. There's no way. I mean, you think 25 years later, more than that, actually. And people talk about him every day like he's still with us. This is right. Same decade, a few years after the big trial and on TV every day and all that, the way that they were talking about it at that time. If you're going to write about a serial killer in the 90s, Jeff Dahmer, how would he not be there? Uh, Let's see. Get another email. Star six one for folks who have commentary as we proceed. Uh, Let's see. So this is different uh, investor. Email number two. He writes in greetings, Gus. Uh, The friend of my Columbine acquaintance did personally witness some of the bullying against Harris and Klebold, but not all that was mentioned. Possible themes so far in the text. This was a failed bombing. Perpetrators were trying to mimic OKC. Timothy McVeigh. Unabomber just left us. Two, astonishing failures of parenting and law enforcement. This could have been prevented. Underline boldface print. Three, the minimization and outright denial of the obvious belief in white supremacy by the two perpetrators by the author. Number four, homoeroticism. I have to share, just for folks listening, I retweeted bunches of Dave Cullen's social media posts on Twitter, my Twitter at until justice at until justice, no crazy spellings or anything like that. And he has many posts where he challenges people for asserting white supremacy, racism in some way motivated Dylan Klebold, Eric Harris to do this, which I found amazing. Given what, you know, even what I started from the bottom, given what, you know, is in their journal so flagrantly, uh, wow, why would, you know, hmm, okay. Keeping that in mind as we proceed as well, and then some of the omissions also, but wow, it seems like that is a major agenda. Like, I want to make sure that people do not think about this case or associate it with white supremacy racism, even though it is staggering. It's, I mean, how many times do you see KKK and swastikas written together on the same page? Charles Manson, Tim McVeigh, how much more flagrant Hitler? How much more flagrant could you get? He writes chapter 37, page 233 to 240. Brooks knew about the petty vandalism and his parents saw Eric as a young criminal. Judy and Randy Brown kept calling the cops. They were sure Brooks uh, they were sure Brooke Guerrera drew the connection to physical evidence of bomb matching those in Eric's description had already been discovered near his home. Are you serious? This means ma- these mass shooters 
don't wake up one day and decide to murder their classmates. There are probably multiple obvious red flags for both parents and enforcement officials if taken seriously and dealt with diligently could potentially prevent these massacres by these white killers. Absolutely. Now, I mean, hey, some of this could even fall into it because the laxness is so widespread, all encompassing. When I say all encompassing, I mean failure by the parents, failure by enforcement officers, uh, failure by teachers. I mean, it's widespread total system failure here. That would not have been the case if it was Leroy Jamal. Is this white people don't care about children too? Because I mean, Jesus Christ. What? <sighs> anyway, chapter 38, page 241. Uh, Cassie and a close friend want to help me murder her. Hardcore sex taught occult imagery, magic spells, kill your parents, scumbags, pay for making you suffer. Uh, blood cocktails, vampires appear throughout. Sound like Eric Harris's <laughs> journal. Like, no cap. Sounds like Eric Harris's journal. This passage seems important. Tell me about it. Psychopathic thoughts and behaviors seem to be pervasive among the white youth in this community. <laughs> trench coat mafia. Hey, let's go the other way. You got the trench coat mafia, and they say Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold weren't even in that. Uh, goths bullying maybe it's an exaggeration on my part but it's hard not to come to the conclusion after reading this maybe she wasn't so angelic after all mm, mm, mm. Uh, that whole passage reminded me that we uh, did the program some years back on uh, mummies vampires cannibals white culture I mean that white culture Halloween is one of the big holidays in this system I played some of the soundtrack from Scream that was the big movie for this decade that's where that franchise started that's exactly what they talking about go out and kill a bunch of children children killing children and blood and witches ah, you know all of that the occult ah, you know white culture kill your parents ah Let's see, number, chapter 39, pardon, page 253, I feel like God, you hear that repeated over and over and over, Tim McVeigh, or I won't say Tim McVeigh, but uh, Ted Kaczynski, even Eric Rudolph, I'm doing God's work, killing these folks, yeah, uh, Eric is God. The pro- even you hear this in Dylan's journal too. That I'm a God compared to these zombies. Uh, Eric saw natural selection had failed. Man had intervened. Medicines, vaccines, special ed programs. He's not even with the Rona. He complained about the vaccines. Uh, it'll be like the L.A. riots, Oklahoma City bombing, World War II. Oh wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know if we got that far. We have to pause. We'll come back to that one uh, after we get to it. Anywho, uh, let's see. Uh, I'll nab some of. My notes, keep an eye on the switchboard. Other folks have commentary and uh, get to the other emails. I didn't even get to all our emails. Um, the Let's see. I guess I'll pick up right where the person that just wrote in, in terms of the importance of the whole Casey Bernal, and they have a book, The System of White Supremacy. Mr. Fuller says that all the time, deception. 
Now you get a whole campaign propaganda and all that where they have big newspaper articles and books and all the rest of it on a lie. We got the 911 gruesome 911 tapes and all of that. Eyewitness statements to corroborate and all the rest of it. And nah, we're going to say it's disputed. Don't they have 911 tapes? Nah, we're going to say, you know, we, we never really know, you know, what, what really happened, you know, stick by us. <laughs> like, what in the world? Like, that's a strive for accuracy. I say that all the time. Like, I mean, at minimum, at minimum, let's make sure we're accurate. We don't, it's, it should be, something should be more important than us hawking a few books or peddling some nonsense about white Jesus or whatever we say this is supposed to be about. Uh, let's be accurate. Let's make sure that we, you know, get the information straight and don't contribute to a whole lot of, of lies and foolishness about, you know, something that's so horrendous, right? Killing children and all the rest. That should be at minimum, right? Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> we we're going to just, she said yes. And we'll, we'll just put that in there. That, you know, we don't really know exactly what happened here. And, you know, you all will never hear the 911 calls. So, I mean, hey, yeah. Uh, and, and even when they talked about all of that and they said that Misty Bernal, Casey's mother, they said that she had to take time off from work at Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin? Now that's one that I will give credit to old Michael Moore, suspected race soldier. That's right at the beginning of Bowling for Columbine. He said, dang, Lockheed Martin, they make bombs to go kill people. Bombs, just like old Unabomber. Just like old Ted Kaczynski. Timothy McVeigh. They just do it on a massive scale. Industrialized bomb makers, as opposed to private citizens. So do you work for Lockheed Martin and you want to come and tell me about some morality and Christian and God and having faith? Like, you work for lot. How different are you from Eric and Dylan? You go and make bombs. That's what they do. Even maybe that influence. Every white people I see every day. What you do? I go to the bomb factory. Oh, okay. What's on TV? Oh, the Unabomber. Wow, he's still out. Okay. Oh, oh wow. Timothy McVeigh. Okay. The, wow, they bombed the Olympics. Wow. Okay. Wow. And they even brought him out here to Colorado. Maybe we can go see. Oh, Ted Kaczynski. Wow. Okay, Lockheed. That's that's what you see every day, huh? Yeah, that's what to do. Yes. Go blow up. Yes. Anarchist cookbook. Yes. Go, but in fact. When they said it was uncommon to find bombs out there, I said, whoa, even the, the fella, our investor who wrote in said he had a pal who, you know, acquaintance or however you phrase it, connected to these events was there. He said he made those little pipe bombs, explosive devices, IEDs. Uh, when he was in high school, so I mean, hey, it could have been a whole lot of people. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 Eric's. Yeah, not mine. Hmm. What does it mean? That's even when when the caller or writer when he said, "Dang, this Casey Bernal, she doesn't sound too angelic." She's talking about killing her parents and all this. Like, that. I said, that's what Eric and Dylan. That's what their journal reads like. Like, dang, how many? What, why did they have so many of these events? Dang. 
Matter of fact, I had another. <laughs> Just this book. When they gave the part, when they had the shooting, and I believe they were in the library, I think it was Emily, she said, so they, uh, Eric, he kills Casey Bernal, and her ears are ringing. She can't hear. I heard that before, no pun intended. There was a shooting in Germany, Erfurt, I think that's how you say it, Erfurt, Germany, in 2000, I think it's 2002, might be one or two years old, but it's really close to Columbine. Some of the people from Columbine went to Germany to console them, like, in fact, and this gunman, he killed even more people than Eric and Dylan. It was just one white boy. But in the middle of his rampage, and he was attacking teachers, although he did kill a student and even a police officer. In the middle of his slaughter, he's running around. I think he killed like seven people at this point. And he's running through the school, going to each classroom, hunting the teachers. And he's running past students. He's not really shooting students at all, really. So he's running past students. And so a student says, oh, my God, is it normal for me to be deaf? And he looks at her and says, "Mm mm-hmm, and pats her on the back. And then he keeps running to go kill more teachers. I lost it. Like, what the... What? What? And this fella, I think he was influenced by Columbine. It was two years out and he was same type of behavior, left the journal and all that. Maybe he listened to Ramstein. I forgot his name. Plus it's in German too, so I struggle a little bit. They got great documentaries on that. Some of the Columbine people, they went to Germany to go and console them. It's amazing. 2002, I think is when it happened. Anyway, uh, but being accurate uh, about what's reported them lying let's see um mm, mm, mm. i just the last thing that i'll get in is we have had multiple scenes where he's he's giving us i think our caller said really gripping detail about the death of dave sanders the one teacher who was killed uh, and how he died and, and just, you know, how he suffered and, and they tried to keep him focused on his family and all the rest of it as they were waiting in vain. Uh, and some of the other people who were shot, Patrick Ireland, remember last week and, and his difficulties even speaking and his parents wondering if he's going to recover and all the really, you know, intense detail. Isaiah shows. And in fact, even this week, when they give more detail about what happened in the library. So we get more detail about Casey Bernal. What he says is that's when Dylan's gun went off, reheard him laugh and make a joke about what he had done. When she looked back at Eric, he was staring her straight in the face. What was he saying? Is this the moment when he killed Isaiah Scholes? Because if it is, oh man, that, I mean, we get all of this detail about, as I said, these white people, Dave Sanders, Patrick Ireland, Casey Bernal. Where's that detail? If that's Isaiah Scholes, you mean when they snatched him out? Where's that little nigger? That's what we heard Vicki Buckley say at the beginning. Colorado Secretary of State, when they dragged him out. Where's that little nigger? Shot him in the chest, I believe, according to autopsy reports all of that how does that just get reduced to dylan's gun went and that's so passive i talk about that not dylan killed somebody dylan's gun went off and brie heard him laugh and make a joke about what he'd done we don't even get does she not give the details she doesn't give the joke about what he said we don't get all that detail that's what i mean about omission and that's so and it's 
the racism because Dave Cullen seems to have a campaign about making sure we don't connect these events with white supremacy racism. We will get to audio segment two. Hopefully we can get the rest of our emails in as well. Uh, if you have commentary, press star or just write them down and we'll get to your commentary after the second audio segment concludes Catherine Massey Book Club Context of White Supremacy Columbine. 39. The Book of God The screws were tightening. Eric met with Andrea Sanchez to receive his diversion contract. He looked ahead to senior year. He would be consumed writing an apology letter, providing restitution, working off fines, meeting a diversion counselor twice a month, seeing his own shrink, attending bullshit classes like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, maintaining good grades, problem-free employment, and 45 hours of community service. They would periodically hand him a Dixie cup and direct him to a urinal. No more alcohol, no more freedom. Eric's first counseling session and his first drug screening would commence in eight days. He met with Sanchez on a Wednesday. Thursday, he stewed. Friday, April 10, 1998, he opened a letter-sized spiral notebook and scribbled, I hate the fucking world. In one year and ten days, he would attack. Eric wrote furiously, filling two vicious pages. People are stupid. I'm not respected. Everyone has their own goddamn opinions on every goddamn thing. At first, the journal sounds like the website, but Fusilet found answers in it. The website was pure rage, no explanation. The journal was explicit. Eric fleshed out his ideas on paper, as well as his personality. Eric had a preposterously grand superiority complex, a revulsion for authority, and an excruciating need for control. I feel like God, Eric announced. I am higher than almost anyone in the fucking world in terms of universal intelligence. In time, his superiority would be revealed. In the interim, Eric dubbed his journal The Book of God. The breadth of his hostility was equally melodramatic. Humans were pathetic fuckheads, too dense to perceive their lifeless existence. We frittered our lives away like automatons, following orders rather than realizing our potential. Ever wonder why we go to school? he asked. It's not too obvious to most of you stupid fucks. But for those who think a little more and deeper, you should realize it is society's way of turning all the young people into good little robots. Human nature was smothered by society. Healthy instincts were smothered by laws. They were training us to be assembly line robots. That's why they lined the school desks up in rows and trained kids to respond to opening and closing bells. The monotonous human assembly line squelched the life out of individual experience. As Eric put it, more of your human nature blown out your ass. Philosophically, the robotic conception was a rare point of agreement between the killers. Dylan referred often to zombies, too. Both boys described their uniqueness as self-awareness. They could see through the human haze, but Dylan saw his distinction as a lonely curse, and he looked on the zombies compassionately. Dylan yearned for the poor little creatures to break out of their boxes. The problem, as Eric saw it, was natural selection. 
He had alluded to the concept on his website. Here he explained relentlessly. Natural selection had failed. Man had intervened. Medicines, vaccines, and special ed programs had conspired to keep the rejects in the human herd. So Eric was surrounded by inferiors who would not shut their freaking mouths. How could he tolerate all the miserable chatter? He had lots of ideas. Nuclear holocaust, biological warfare, imprisoning the species in a giant ultimate doom game. But Eric was also realistic. He couldn't restore the natural order, but he could impose some selection of his own. He would sacrifice himself to accomplish it. I know I will die soon, he wrote. So will you and everyone else. By soon, he meant a year. Eric had a remarkably long time horizon for a seventeen-year-old contemplating his own death. The lies jumped out at Fusillet. Eric took giddy pleasure in his deceptions. I lie a lot, he wrote, almost constant, and to everybody, just to keep my own ass out of the water. Let's see, what are some big lies I have told? Yeah, I stopped smoking, for doing it, not for getting caught. No, I haven't been making more bombs. Eric did not believe in God, but he enjoyed comparing himself to him. Like Dylan, he did so frequently, but not delusionally. They were like God, superior in insight, intelligence, and awareness. Like Zeus, Eric created new rules, angered easily, and punished people in unusual ways. Eric had conviction. Eric had a plan. Eric would get the guns and build the explosives and maim and kill and so much more. They would terrify way beyond their gun blasts. The ultimate weapon was TV. Eric saw the Columbine commons. He might kill hundreds, but the dead and dismembered meant nothing to him. Bit players, who cared? The performance was not about them. Eric's one-day-only production was about the audience. The irony was, his attack was too good for his victims. It would sail right over their heads. The majority of the audience won't even understand, Eric lamented. Too bad. They would feel the power of his hand. If we have figured out the art of time bombs beforehand, we will set hundreds of them around houses, roads, bridges, buildings, and gas stations. It'll be like the L.A. riots, the Oklahoma bombing, World War II, Vietnam, Duke and Doom, all mixed together. Maybe we will even start a little rebellion or revolution to fuck things up as much as we can. I want to leave a lasting impression on the world. Dr. Fuselet set down the journal. It had taken him about an hour to read, that first time, in the noisy Columbine bandroom, two or three days after the murders. Now he had a pretty good hunch about what he was dealing with. A psychopath. Part 4. Take Back the School 40. Psychopath I will choose to kill. Eric wrote. Why? His explanations didn't add up. Because we were morons? How would that make a kid kill? To most readers, Eric's rants just sounded nuts. Dr. Fuselet had the opposite reaction. Insanity was marked by mental confusion. Eric Harris expressed cold, rational calculation. 
Fusilier ticked off Eric's personality traits. Charming, callous, cunning, manipulative, comically grandiose, and egocentric, with an appalling failure of empathy. It was like reciting the psychopathy checklist. Fusilier spent the next twelve weeks contesting his theory. That's how he approached a problem, develop a hypothesis, and then search for every scrap of evidence to refute it. Test it against alternate explanations, build the strongest possible case to support them, and see if the hypothesis fails. If it withstands that, it's solid. Psychopathy held. Diagnosis didn't solve the crime, but it laid the foundation. Ten years afterward, Eric still baffled the public, which insisted on assessing his motives through a normal lens. Eric was neither normal nor insane. Psychopathy represents a third category. Psychopathic brains don't function like those in either of the other groups, but they are consistently similar to one another. Eric killed for two reasons. To demonstrate his superiority and to enjoy it. To a psychopath, both motives make sense. Psychopaths are capable of behavior that normal people find not only horrific, but baffling, wrote Dr. Robert Hare, the leading authority on psychopaths. They can torture and mutilate their victims with about the same sense of concern that we feel when we carve a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. Eric saw humans as chemical compounds with an inflated sense of their own worth. It's just all nature, chemistry, and math, he wrote. You die, burn, melt, evaporate, decay. Psychopaths have likely plagued mankind since the beginning, but they are still poorly understood. In the 1800s, as the fledgling field of psychology began classifying mental disorders, one group refused to fit. Every known psychosis was marked by a failure of reasoning or a debilitating ailment, paralyzing fear, hallucinations, voices, phobias, and so on. In 1885, the term psychopath was introduced to describe vicious human predators who were not deranged, delusional, or depressed. They just enjoyed being bad. Psychopaths are distinguished by two characteristics. The first is a ruthless disregard for others. They will defraud, maim, or kill for the most trivial personal gain. The second is an astonishing gift for disguising the first. It's the deception that makes them so dangerous. You never see him coming. It's usually a him. More than 80% are male. Don't look for the oddball creeping you out. Psychopaths don't act like Hannibal Lecter or Norman Bates. They come off like Hugh Grant in his most adorable role. In 1941, Dr. Hervey Cleckley revolutionized the understanding of psychopathy with his book, The Mask of Sanity. Egocentrism and failure of empathy were the underlying drivers, but Cleckley chose his title to reflect the element that trumped those. If psychopaths were merely evil, they would not be a major threat. They wreak so much havoc that they should be obvious, yet the majority have consistently eluded the law. Cleckley worried about his title metaphor. Psychopathy is not a two-dimensional cover that can be lifted off the face like a Halloween mask. It permeates the offender's personality. Joy, grief, anxiety, or amusement. He can mimic any on cue. He knows the facial expressions, the voice modulation, and the body language. He's not just conning you with his scheme. He's conning you with his life. 
His entire personality is a fabrication with the purpose of deceiving suckers like you. Psychopaths take great personal pride in their deceptions and extract tremendous joy from them. Lies become the psychopath's occupation, and when the truth will work, they lie for sport. I like to con people, one of Hare's subjects told the researcher during an extended interview. I'm conning you right now. Lying for amusement is so profound in psychopaths, it stands out as their signature characteristic. Duping delight, psychologist Paul Ekman dubbed it. Cleckley spent five decades refining his research and publishing four further editions of The Mask of Sanity. It wasn't until the 1970s that Robert Hare isolated 20 characteristics of the condition and created the Psychopathy Checklist, the basis for virtually all contemporary research. He also wrote the definitive book on the malady, Without Conscience. The terminology got muckier. Sociopath was introduced in the 1930s, initially as a broader term for antisocial behavior. Eventually, psychopath and sociopath became virtually synonymous. Varying definitions for the latter have led to distinctions by some experts, but these are not uniformly accepted. The primary reason for the competing terms is that each was adopted in different fields. Criminologists and law enforcement personnel prefer psychopath. Sociologists tend towards sociopath. Psychologists and psychiatrists are split, but most experts on the condition use psychopath, and the bulk of the research is based on Hare's checklist. A third term, antisocial personality disorder, or APD, was introduced in the 1970s and remains the only diagnosis included in the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, dsm 4 However, it covers a much broader range of disorders than does psychopath and has been roundly rejected by leading researchers. So, where do psychopaths come from? Researchers are divided, with the majority suggesting a mixed role, nature leading, nurture following. Dr. Hare believes psychopaths are born with a powerful predisposition, which can be exacerbated by abuse or neglect. A correlation exists between psychopaths and unstable homes. The violent upbringing seemed to turn fledgling psychopaths more vicious. But current data suggests those conditions do not cause the psychopathy. They only make a bad situation worse. It also appears that even the best parenting may be no match for a child born to be bad. Symptoms appear so early and so often in stable homes with normal siblings that the condition seems to be inborn. Most parents report having been aware of disturbing signs before the child entered kindergarten. Dr. Hare described a five-year-old girl repeatedly attempting to flush her kitten down the toilet. I caught her just as she was about to try again, the mother said. She seemed quite unconcerned, maybe a bit angry, about being found out. When the woman told her husband, the girl calmly denied the whole thing. Shame did not register, neither did fear. Psychopaths are not individuals losing touch with those emotions. They never develop them from the start. 
Hare created a separate screening device for juveniles and identified hallmarks that appeared during the school years. Gratuitous lying, indifference to the pain of others, defiance of authority figures, unresponsiveness to reprimands or threatened punishment, petty theft, persistent aggression, cutting classes and breaking curfews, cruelty to animals, early experimentation with sex, and vandalism and setting fires. Eric bragged about nine of the ten hallmarks in his journal and on his website, for most of them relentlessly. Only animal cruelty is missing. At some point, as either a cause or an effect of psychopathy, the psychopath's brain begins processing emotional responses differently. Early in his career, Dr. Hare recognized the anatomical difference. He submitted a paper analyzing the unusual brain waves of psychopaths to a scientific journal which rejected it with a dismissive letter. Those EEGs couldn't have come from real people, the editor wrote. Exactly, Hare thought. Psychopaths are that different. Eric Harris baffled the public because we could not conceive of a human with his motives. Even Kate Batten would describe him as a teenager trying to act like an adult. But the angst we associate with teenagers was the least of Eric's drives. His brain was never scanned, but it probably would have shown activity unrecognizable as human to most neurologists. The fundamental nature of a psychopath is a failure to feel. A psychopath's grasp of fear and suffering is particularly weak. Dr. Hare's research team spent decades studying psychopaths in prison populations. They asked one psychopath to describe fear. When I rob a bank, I notice that the teller shakes or becomes tongue-tied, he said. One barfed all over the money. He found that puzzling. The researcher pushed him to describe his own fear. How would he feel with the gun pointed at him? The convict said he might hand over the money, get the hell out, or find a way to turn the tables. Those were responses, the researcher said. How would you feel? Feel? Why would he feel? Researchers often compare psychopaths to robots or rogue computers like HAL from 2001, A Space Odyssey, programmed only to satisfy their own objectives. That's the closest approximation of their behavior, but the metaphor lacks nuance. Psychopaths feel something. Eric seemed to show sadness when his dog was sick, and he occasionally felt twinges of regret toward humans. But the signals come through dimly. Cleckley described this as a poverty of emotional range. That's a tricky concept, because psychopaths develop a handful of primitive emotions closely related to their own welfare. Three have been identified, anger, frustration, and rage. Psychopaths erupt with ferocious bouts of anger, which can get them labeled emotional. Look more closely, Cleckley advised. The conviction dawns on those who observe him carefully that here we deal with the readiness of expression rather than a strength of feeling. No love, no grief, not even sorrow, really, or hope or despair about his own future. Psychopaths feel nothing deep, complex, or sustained. The psychopath was prone to vexation, spite, quick and label flashes of quasi-affection, peevish resentment, shallow moods of self-pity, puerile attitudes of vanity, absurd and showy poses of indignation. 
Cleckley could have been describing Eric Harris's journal. How dare you think that I and you are part of the same species when we are so different, Eric wrote. You aren't human. You are a robot, and if you pissed me off in the past, you will die if I see you. Indignation runs strong in the psychopath. It springs from a staggering ego and sense of superiority. Psychopaths do not feel much, but when they lose patience with inferiors, they can really let it rip. It doesn't go any deeper. Even an earthworm will recoil if you poke it with a stick. A squirrel will exhibit frustration if you tease it by offering a peanut, then repeatedly snatching it back. Psychopaths make it that far up the emotional ladder, but they fall far short of the average golden retriever, which will demonstrate affection, joy, compassion, and empathy for a human in pain. Researchers are still beginning to understand psychopaths, but they believe psychopaths crave the emotional responses they lack. They are nearly always thrill-seekers. They love roller coasters and hang gliding, and they seek out high-anxiety occupations like ER tech, bond trader, or marine. Crime, danger, impoverishment, death. Any sort of risk will help. They chase new sources of excitement because it is so difficult for them to sustain. They rarely stick with a career. They get bored. Even as career criminals, psychopaths underperform. They lack clear goals and objectives, getting involved in a wide variety of opportunistic offenses rather than specializing the way typical career criminals do, Cleckley wrote. They make careless mistakes and pass up stunning opportunities because they lose interest. They perform spectacularly in short bursts, a few weeks, a few months, a year-long big con, then walk away. Eric spent his young life that way. He should have been a 4.0 student, but collected A's, B's, and C's. He made one year-long commitment to NBK, but he had no ambition, zero plans for his life. He was one of the smartest kids in his high school, but apparently never bothered to apply to college. No job prospects either, beyond blackjack. Despite a childhood of soldier fantasies, a military father, and a stated desire for a career in the Marines, Eric made no attempt to enlist. When a recruiter cold-called him during the last week of his life, he met the guy, but never returned the call to find out whether he had been accepted. Rare, killer psychopaths nearly always get bored with murder, too. When they slit a throat, their pulse races, but it falls just as fast. It stays down. No more joy from cutting throats for a while. That thrill has already been spent. A second, less common approach to the banality of murder seems to be the dyad. Murderous pairs who feed off each other. Criminologists have been aware of the dyad phenomenon for decades. Leopold and Loeb, Bonnie and Clyde, the Beltway Snipers of 2002. Because dyads account for only a fraction of mass murders, little research has been conducted on them. We know that the partnerships tend to be asymmetrical. An angry, erratic, depressive, and a sadistic psychopath make a combustible pair. The psychopath is in control, of course, but the hot-headed sidekick can sustain his excitement leading up to the big kill. It takes heat and coal to make a tornado, Dr. Fuselier is fond of saying. Eric craved heat, but he couldn't sustain it. Dylan was a volcano. 
you could never tell when he might erupt. Day after day, for more than a year, Dylan juiced Eric with erratic jolts of excitement. They played the killing out again and again, the cries, the screams, the smell of burning flesh. Eric savored the anticipation. Dr. Hare's EEGs suggested that the psychopathic brain operates differently, but he could not be sure how or why. After Eric's death, a colleague advanced our understanding with a new technology, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Tests, FMRIs, create a picture of the brain with light indicating active regions. Dr. Kent Keel wired subjects up and showed them a series of flashcards. Half contained emotionally charged words like rape, murder, and cancer. The others were neutral, like rock or doorknob. Normal people found the disturbing words disturbing. The brain's emotional nerve center, called the amygdala, lit up. The psychopathic amygdalae were dark. The emotional flavors that color our days are invisible to psychopaths. Dr. Keel repeated the experiment with pictures, including graphic shots of homicides. Again, psychopaths' amygdalae were unaffected, but the language center activated. They seemed to be analyzing the emotions instead of experiencing them. He responds to events that others find arousing, repulsive, or scary with the words interesting and fascinating, Dr. Hare said. For psychopaths, horror is purely intellectual. Their brains search for words to describe what the rest of us would feel. That fits the profile. Psychopaths react to pain or tragedy by assessing how they can use the situation to manipulate others. So, what's the treatment for psychopathy? Dr. Hare summarized the research on a century of attempts in two words. Nothing works. It is the only major mental affliction to elude treatment. And therapy often makes it worse. Unfortunately, programs of this sort merely provide the psychopath with better ways of manipulating, deceiving, and using people. Hare wrote, Individual therapy can be a bonanza, one-on-one -on -one training, to perfect the performance. These programs are like a finishing school, a psychopath boasted to Dr. Hare's team. They teach you how to put the squeeze on people. Eric was blessed with at least two unintentional coaches. Bob Kriegshauser in the Juvenile Diversion Program, and his psychiatrist, Dr. Albert. Eric was a quick study. The notes in his diversion file document a steady improvement, session by session. Oddly, a large number of psychopaths spontaneously improve around middle age. The phenomenon has been observed for decades, but not explained. Otherwise, psychopaths appear to be lost causes. Within the psychiatric community, that has drawn stiff resistance to diagnosing minors with the condition. But clearly, many juveniles are well on their way. Dr. Keel has a mobile fMRI lab and a research team funded by the University of New Mexico. He mapped about 500 brains at three prison systems in 2008. Because of the skewed sample pool, about 20% met the criteria for psychopathy. He believes that answers about the causes and treatment of psychopathy are coming within reach. While Eric was devising his attack, Dr. Hare was working on a regimen to address his kind. Hare began by re-examining the data on those spontaneous improvers.
From adolescence to their fifties, psychopaths showed virtually no change in emotional characteristics, but improved dramatically in antisocial behavior. The inner drives did not change, but their behavior did. Hare believes that these psychopaths might simply be adapting. Fiercely rational, they'd figured out that prison was not working for them. So Hare proposed using their self-interest to the public advantage. The program he developed accepts that psychopaths will remain egocentric and uncaring for life, but will adhere to rules if it's in their own interest. Convincing them that there are ways they can get what they want without harming others is the key, Hare said. You say to them, most people think with their hearts, not with their heads. And your problem is you think too much with your head. So let's change the problem into an asset. They understand that. While Eric was in high school, a juvenile treatment center in Wisconsin began a program developed independently, but based on that approach. It also addressed the psychopathic drives for instant gratification and control. Subjects were rated every night on adherence to rules and rewarded with extended privileges the next day. The program was not designed specifically for fledgling psychopaths, but it produced significant improvements in that population. A four-year study published in 2006 concluded that they were 2.7 times less likely to become violent than kids with similar psychopathy scores in other programs. For the first time in the history of psychopathy, a treatment appears to have worked. It awaits replication. Psychopathy experts are cautiously optimistic about coming advances. I believe that within ten years we will have a much better perspective on psychopathy than we do now, Dr. Keels said. Ideally, we will be able to help effectively manage the condition. I would not say that there is a cure on the horizon, but I do hope that we can implement effective management strategies. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. We'll pick up there. Coming down the home stretch of Columbine, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 Five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. See, all right, get in one quick email and then we'll nab folks who dialed in. All right, email. I guess I'll finish the email that I attempted to read last time around. So. One of our investors, I guess that was email number two. So on chapter 39, we hadn't got that far yet. Now I can read that. Chapter 39. I feel like God, Eric announced. The problem, as Eric saw, na uh, natural selection had failed. Man had intervened. Medicines. Uh, it'll be like the L.A. riots. Oklahoma City bombing Tim McVeigh. World War II, Vietnam, Duke and Doom. Those are white video games. Um, Harris would have been a part of the Hitler Youth Corps in a bygone era, for sure, eventually graduating to be in charge of the 
final solution. Reads a little like he was hoping for the proverbial race war. Hmm, isn't that what Charles Manson was trying to spark? Hmm, yes, yes, hmm. Uh, let's see. Chapter 40, page 257. Dr. Fuselier had the opposite reaction. Insanity was marked by mental confusion. Eric Harris expressed cold, rational calculation. Fuselier ticked off Eric's personality traits. Charming, calcul- calculus, callous, sorry, callous, cunning, uh, all traits that I think would be necessary if you wanted to dominate the known universe. I did uh, tweet out at until justice. I did tweet out uh, the late great Bobby E. Wright, Dr. Bobby E. Wright's psychopathic racial personality and other essays. Very important book. Top 10, dare I say. Um, and it's a short read too, but he talks about this exactly in saying that is how white people collectively function in relation to non-white people. Psychopathic racial personality and other essays. Number two, uh, psychopathic brains don't function like those in either of the other groups, but they are consistently similar to one another. Eric killed for two reasons to demonstrate his superiority and to enjoy it. White supremacists kill often just for fun. Like we should get our, our clip in right there. Shouldn't we get our clip in right there? Lauren had just mentioned. Let's see. White people kill for fun. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Page 257. Dr. Robert Hare, the leading authority on psychopaths, they can torture and mutilate their victims with about the same sense of concern that we feel when we carve a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. Similar to the lynching of black males, burning them alive, cutting off the genitals, and distributing the remains as souvenirs. Indeed. I thought... Wisdom of Psychopaths? Did we read in that book called that? Did we read Kevin Dutton? Number four. Uh, 20 characteristics of the condition created the psychopathy checklist. Wrote the definitive book without conscious. uh, Sociopath was introduced in the 1930s. Uh, I've always been confused about the distinction between these two terms. This seems to clear it up. Clarity is always great. Number five. Page 259. Unstable homes, violent upbringings. Current data suggests those conditions do not cause the psychopathy. Best parenting may be no match for a child born to be bad. Hmm. Symptoms appear so early and so often in stable home conditions seem to be inborn. Uh, both inbred and taught reinforced by suspected racist parents, the psychopathic racial personality and other essays two times. Bobby E. Wright, late great. Number six, page 260. Submitted a paper analyzing the unusual brainwaves of psychopaths to a scientific journal which rejected it with a dismissive letter. Those EEGs couldn't have come from real people. The editor wrote, his brain was never scanned but it would probably have shown activity unrecognizable as human to most neurologists. There is reduced gray matter in areas of the brain associated with empathetic processing, moral reasoning, emotions such as guilt. See the antisocial brain psychopathy matters. S. Gregory et al. Arch of General uh, Psychiatry, 2012. I wonder if Dr. Welsing saw that. Number seven, the fundamental nature of a psychopath is a failure to feel. The pain and and misery experienced by non-white people seems to have little, if any, impact on the feelings, in quotes, 
of people classified as white. There is data on this. There is a sociologist at one of those Ivy League, so-called prestigious white institutions where they've looked at like how white people respond when they have a report about Tamir Rice or something like that. And white people literally have just as they said, collectively show less feelings for the pain, suffering of black people that they cause. Number eight, uh, love roller coaster and hang gliding, seek out high anxiety occupations, ER tech, bond trader or marine crime danger. Uh, these just seem like the characteristics of white culture, not just white psychopaths. I was thinking the same thing. Mr. Fuller, he said, what's his term? Thrilling. I said, you could substitute where he says risks. They seek out risks. Any sort of risk will help. Thrills. Talk thrill. That's in the word guy. Thrilling. And generally, what's more thrilling than practicing racism, white supremacy, where we might get to kill someone. Thrilling. Number nine, Dyad, murderous pairs who feed off each other, Leopold and Loeb, Bonnie and Clyde, Beltway Snipers of 2002. Partnerships tend to be asymmetrical, erratic, depressive, and sadistic. Psychopaths make a combustible pair. The psychopath is in control. Uh, interesting that the black dyad are not referred to by their proper names. I said the same thing. I was like, what the? <laughs> John Muhammad? Lee Malbo, can we not get names but black male privilege, right? Even the Negro male serial killer, we can't even get a name. Uh, niggers, uh. Anyway, like, and, and these folks are celebrated white heroes. Bonnie and Clyde, they're not thought of as villains. And say, ah, people make songs about them. Bonnie and Clyde, ah. People made songs about Eric Rudolph, too, mind you. Maybe I'll play that one next week. But these folks are celebrating. We can't even him with no name. That's what they did my man in uh, Harry Potter. Voldemort. Him who cannot be named. Dang. Black male privilege. Uh, number 10. So what's the treatment for psychopathy? Dr. Hare in two words. Nothing works. Individual theory can be a bonanza. One-on-one -on -one training to perfect the performance. Uh, reminds me a little of how suspected racists become more refined in their practice after engaging in the study of racism, white supremacy. Jane, El Jane Elliott, Jacqueline Battalore, Robin D'Angelo, Tim Wise, da 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 da. Uh, let's see. Number 11, all of them guests on the program except Dr. D'Angelo, who was invited. Number 11, Eric was in high school. A juvenile treatment center in Wisconsin began a program. Jeff Dahmer began a program developed independent. Oh, now see, that's what I mean. If you're going to write, that was Dylan, but if you're going to write a paper serial on serial killers, Charles Manson and serial killers, how in the world, if you're a homie that you kick it with every day and make bombs with, he spent time in Wisconsin and it's had to be, come on, come on, Jeff Dahmer. Uh, but based on that approach, she addressed psych psychopathic drives. The program was not designed specifically for fledgling psychopaths. White children get therapy. Black children get jail. Talk about and, and even the thing that I thought like all this, I really we could have fast forwarded through all that. We read wisdom of psychopaths. I read psychopathic racial personality and other essays. So I didn't need all that. We can skip all that. All of that and really in my mind is like that. Again, that worshiping. That's why it's wisdom of psychopaths. Like, ooh, we look up to ooh. Hannibal Lecter. Ooh. That's why my man Anthony Hopkins won that award. But really, 
if you all had done your job and you all is these white urchins, white killers, parents, teachers, enforcement officers, if any of you had done your job, even just one of you had done your job, this wouldn't have happened. Even if they are psychopaths or whatever, it doesn't matter if you find the bomb. And it's the, whoa, maybe we got a psychopath. Well, boys will be boys. Pranks. We all make bombs. We all got a copy of the anarchist cookbook out here. If that's white culture, none of this matters. If you get better treating them, you don't get better. This is reinforced and we don't even see this as abnormal. This is normal white con. That's what she said. Casey Bernal. Blood. Oh, let's kill your parents. Ah. If this is normalized behavior, that's not going to be looked at as abnormal deviant. We're not going to solve this problem anyway. And guess what? We haven't. What does it mean to be white? All right. Let's see. Folks who dialed in commentary to stairs or uh, 313 or 605. 313-5164, decode 564-943, pound, press star 61, if you would like to participate. Uh, folks with commentary, uh, they would like to share. Let's see. Three four three eight should be with us. Yes, sir. Just listening. Where did you have commentary? Maybe just listening. We'll double check. Make sure. Make sure my audio's okay too. Let's see. Well, I did hear the audio segment I just played, so I should be good. We'll double check. Let's see. Uh, the oh I hit it the other way my fault I messed up let's try it again <laughs> sorry about that three four three eight let's try it again I'll be hurt yes sir yeah, just to continue from um, the last session um, just master deceivers um, I forgot to say something about uh, the uh, martyr hall of fame with Cassie. Um, just uh, the story that they didn't tell us about how this the story was a whole lie and how they like to make things up to fit their to fit their uh, their agenda or whatever they're trying to do um, and how they how there was an actual story about Val and how she ended up becoming uh, almost uh, she was an enigma to them because. Uh, she actually had a real story and they didn't want to tell her story. They wanted to tell this made up story. And I just thought that was interesting. Um, um, also, uh, like I said, master deceivers, uh, Eric was saying, uh, he said, uh, I lie a lot. Um, I wrote down a couple of things. Um, yeah, he was a psychopath. Uh, Dr. Fuzile, I guess his, uh, his assessment of them were that uh, he said that Eric was uh, he did this because he felt like he was uh, superior and I guess he said he felt like he um, he did it for fun um, I guess for entertainment um, the two things I got from that was I, I just felt like that was like almost like a this reminded me of like a, a sporting event um, 
just like being superior and just like I said, entertainment, just doing things for like a video game. Um, I think uh, our past little studies. I know you don't like sports as as far as like talking about sports and things like that, but I think sports is like a real key component to white supremacy. Um, we can learn a lot from sports as we as we've known as from the, our Brazil study, our Bill Russell study, our Mahmoud study. Um, I think sports is a big component of this uh, this problem that we're dealing with. Um, I'm a big, I've grown up to be a sports fan myself, so I don't want to go all into that, but I felt like that was something that, that they were saying. Um, they were talking about conning people. I felt like that was like a wrestling, kind of like how wrestling is. Like wrestling is like the ultimate sport where they just, their food is not, we, we all know wrestling is fake, but people still love it. Um, all the other sports like basketball and football, we we haven't, we don't, we're not uh, convinced, we haven't been uh convinced of that not being real yet so we still uh believe in that but um there's another uh the anti-personal disorder when i had looked that up uh the word that came up it said i don't know if they said i thought it said anti-personal disorder but when i looked it up it said anti-personality disorder anti-social personality disorder and it says just a particularly challenging type of personality disorder characterized by impulsive irresponsible, and often criminal behavior. Someone with antipersonal disorder will typically be manipulative, deceitful, and reckless and will not care for other people's feelings. I felt like they were just letting us know, telling us about that, because that was going to probably be possibly Eric and uh, Dylan's. Uh, that would be their, their uh, I guess you would say, their, um, their mental illness that they was going to be affiliated with. And uh, like you said, therapy would be <laughs> therapy and jail. They get therapy and we get jail. That's all I have to say. Um, appreciate you listening. Have a good night, Gus. Thank you. White people kill for fun. Uh, get it correctly. Indeed. Much obliged, sir. Um, yeah, the <laughs> lying as an occupation that's what he wrote in the book for the psychopaths lying as an occupation but that's what came to mind when you were talking about all this lying willful lying to me what we've read if all of that is accurate willful lying and I even got uh, some of the big articles that came out when it was being revealed like oh wait a minute maybe she didn't say yes maybe we got it wrong which and they could have just went with the truth right and that would have been great we got 911 calls to support this and witnesses and all that get it out there correctly and even they could have even just hey Casey turned her life around she was praying as she died like they could have did that too hey she she was thinking about white Jesus on the way out hey Casey Bernard and they could have done the same thing nah 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 we like lying as an occupant lying for no reason <laughs> Like, why do you have to make, why do we have to do all that? Nah, we, we'd rather go without lying. Yeah, well, wait a minute, we got old Val. Shut up, Val. Get on. Like, <laughs> dang, dang. Lying for no reason. That I do, I do know folks who do that. Bestseller. Knew we got a bell. You're not messing that up here. Instead of, you know, us making 20 million, we might only make 10 million. We'd rather get the 20 million. 
Moran didn't come back and talk about morality, right? That's what she work at Lockheed. That's what I said. And on top of all this, you work at Lockheed Martin. You work at the bomb factory, right? Like what the what what? My head hurts. Uh, let's see. Oh, I mentioned them. They they made sure I got in my Eric Rudolph comparison. Uh, non Clemson dad, mommy C woke baby with us as well. Yes, woke baby is up. Hello, Gus. Hello, cows listeners. We've been enjoying uh, the broadcast and the, the book club. Um, I just wanted to make a note uh, about an observation I had over several broadcasts. It just seems like when these mass killings happen that every single white person tries to exploit and capitalize, and that was a theme for tonight's broadcast. Um, for example, the churches, they held altar calls for sinners to get right with God and repent and come back to the church, come back to Christ. The churches were offering so-called help to those in need um, in order to maybe bolster bolster the numbers in the church pews and, you know, kind of control people in a way. Um, Misty Bernal, Cassie's mom, she... Even though the book says she wasn't trying to capitalize her profit, that was the last thing she wanted to do. She wrote the book anyways, despite knowing that Cassie's martyrdom um, was inaccurate. Um, and, you know, she sat with the girl. I don't remember the young girl's name, but she sat with her and, you know, the family asked her, did this, did this not happen? And the girl was like, no, it didn't happen. Or she just said no, but she still wrote the book and put put some sort of note in there that um, like uh, people had different recounts of how the how the actual um, story went. And then Sue Klebal, uh is the biggest capitalist or opportunist. She's written a book. She's done countless interviews, documentaries, um, et cetera, you know, and she's made probably a lot of money uh, about talking about her son, Dylan, and trying to inform people that he was a great kid and she didn't see this coming, even though, um, even though a lot of things say otherwise, she just is claiming ignorance versus uh, being complicit to all this. And lastly, the carpenter who made the crosses for all the victims, including Eric and Dylan. He tried to um, capitalize on it by um, making those crosses. And with that, I will end my share. Much obliged, uh, Mommy C. There is a lot of shameless huckstering uh, on display here. I said that last week when they had that white fella. I'm glad I forgot his name uh, who brought those crosses that she just touched on, Mommy C. Like, come on. And to just have that, oh, that's that whole book. Casey Bernal published a whole book of lies. Maybe we'll never really know what happened. <laughs> like, you got the recording, man. Come on, stop lying. Like, all of that to just hold bowling for Columbine. That is, I mean, even the whole gun rights. This was a failed bombing. 
that point is not even like no Michael Moore you didn't grasp that this is not a gun rights and gun this and gun that this that was the backup this was a failed bombing used anarchist cookbook they got pages in there that they didn't include in the FBI report because they said ooh we don't want the copycats that even came up this week so called copycat we don't want the copycats so they left that part out like you can't just go get William Powell's anarchist cookbook which many white killers subsequently have done and just oh okay we see what they did and boom go make our own napalm and ooh. anywho uh, but the huckstering within all this is disgraceful even I would say because it's tons of Columbine books like racks and oh my god and films Jesus Christ I said last week Dirty Harry should be on the Columbine film list but I mean movies that are specifically about Columbine I can't even count the number of just like Hollywood made up type films that are based on Columbine it's tons of them they're still making them in addition to documentaries and video I mean Jesus Christ, like on so many levels, if you want to illustrate like a more recent white people do not care about children, Columbine for about a billion different reasons. Anywho, let's see. Email number, lost count, one, two, I think this is three. Email number three, I think. Greetings, Mr. Renegade. One of the female callers last week, I believe it was Miss Lauren, discussed research she had done on psychopathy and how there was a debate about whether it was a disorder or a survival mechanism essential for survival. I thought that was really interesting because of the author's deference to the killers, both of whom I believe were psychopaths based on the information the author has included. While Eric and Dylan may not be exactly alike, they each display many of the characteristics of psychopaths, including Dylan writing about Charles Manson and serial killers. Psychopaths, ooh, page skip. Psychopaths erupt with ferocious bouts of anger, which can get them labeled emotional. Look more closely. Checkley advised the conviction dawns on those who observe him carefully that here we deal with a readiness of expression rather than a strength of feeling. No love, no grief, not even sorrow. Uh, psychopaths feel nothing complex or sustained. The psychopath was prone to vexation. I love that term. This is all on page 261. Dylan's anger issues, love for Harriet, which is more akin to infatuation or lust. Uh, it said that word love. Lawrence talked to us about that too. Mr. Fuller, That watch that word love because I mean... Uh, what what do you mean exactly? He continues, uh, lust, poor academic performance, his applying for the job at the computer shop and after being hired, never showing up are just some of the indicators. The author quotes one psychiatrist who says there is nothing that can adequately treat psychopathy, but are, are therapists taking the correct approach with individuals who are identified as psychopaths? What then is the solution if the issue can't be treated it seems to me if no one seriously was seriously attempting to address either eric or dylan's psychopathy let alone their criminal and terroristic behavior that's what i said for example on page 263 it says that eric fooled bob krieger in the juvenile diversion program and 
psychiatrist Dr. Albert. I wonder did he really deceive them or did they just not care enough to deal with Eric's issues? White people don't care about children. I've heard some idiots say that. Uh, or did they purposely minimize his problems so that he wouldn't have anything negative on his record, which his father wanted to avoid? Oh, I meant forgot to say, there are some people who have looked at this and have said because Wayne Harris, his military connections, him being in the Air Force, I believe, uh, working for the Air Force, I believe he even participated in the Gulf War. Because of his connections, he may have been able to persuade enforcement officers to allow his son into the diversional program. And remember, he talked about his notes. That was his concern with school and all that. Let's make sure this doesn't go on his record. He's got a bright future. He continues, uh, doesn't have anything on his record, which his father wanted to avoid. The dreaded black mark. Both Eric and Dylan are given mercy from the judge when they don't deserve it. And the police do not pursue crimes that are reported to them and adequately punish the two. I was also thinking if psychopathy is a survival technique, then there is no one to blame. It is natural and correct for the survival of the individual or the people group. So both Eric and Dylan are not at fault and in fact are victims that is how a lot of people talk about them that they're victims the Shoals family finally came up in the book in regards to their lawsuit oh we didn't get that far we'll have to pause there because we didn't get to any of that yeah we have to pause there uh yeah we didn't get to any of that pick up there next week let me see we have one other person wrote an email make sure i don't miss any of the folks who took time to write i think there was one more last one okay uh, there are so many contradictions in each book I've read. Email number four, I think this is. Uh, I'm reading Brooks Brown's book. So he was the one they were going to kill, but they let him go the day of the bombing. He discusses how Columbine High faculty contributed to the bullying and that Dylan and Eric were victims. Randy Brown implies this too. That's uh, Brooks' father. Dave Cullen implies that Columbine High is like a utopia. His opening scene is filled with school pride and emotional connection between students and staff. Brooks Brown contradicts this and implies the staff were often negligent and spiteful. However, it is obvious Columbine staff did not care about bullying. If you read any information regarding Isaiah Shoals, we haven't heard any information about him at all. That's why I'm saying like, wow, I think that's another act of racism in my opinion we'll have to see if that gets you know corrected as we proceed but wow it's negligent <laughs> deliberately negligent uh isaiah shows he was tormented by classmates and teammates so badly that he quit the football team it's almost demented that dave cullen starts his book glorifying frank deangelis the football coach who probably was well aware of isaiah being abused the book you sent me, Columbine, A True Crime Story, that's by Jeff Cass, details Dylan's teachers discussing his outbursts and short temper in the classroom. Oh, my God. This Dave Cullen talks about Dylan is so sweet and he's not like Eric. This dude had a reputation for the launching projectiles in class, calling teachers the B word like what? Continuing temper in the classroom he was fired from helping his computer teacher with school network after he screamed at another teacher and called her the b-word that's in many reports not in cullen's book i believe it was if this was a black student they'd be on a watch list after that incident they would have been expelled 
Uh, I believe if this was a black uh, or the hacking incident in that book, Jeff Cash shows many examples of Dylan and Eric being bullies or harassing other students. However, he seems very influenced by Randy and Brooks Brown, who believes Dylan and Eric were abused because they were outsiders. Jeff Cash does not include the bowling Nazi quote. That is fascinating. Oh, gosh. I'll share that later. From what I was learning, I find Dave Cullen's book to be full of many inaccuracies. He gives the impression that Dylan and Eric were well-liked, but just miscreants. Dave Cullen also seems to imply Eric and Dylan's fascination with Nazism was just an aesthetic, i.e. music and clothing, and not an ideology. Have you read Eric's paper on the Nazi regime? Or Dylan's proposal to write about Charles Manson and serial killers. Probably Jeff Dahmer. Uh, he is not confused at all. You can see in the writing he is in awe of the amount of destruction and murder they caused. In the paper, Eric is very careful with his words to not overtly praise them because it is a school essay, I believe. He uses words like incredible to describe the death toll and racism of the Nazis. Uh, the tweet that I sent by Dave Cullen is quite infuriating. He is aware of how Isaiah Scholes was singled out and the joy Dylan got from finding a black person to taunt before he killed him. It's almost like he wants Eric to be seen as the Grinch, just as a person who is angry and hateful for no reason. That is an illogical conclusion when looking through all the information and documentation, especially from Eric's own words. If he cared about dispelling Columbine myths, he would republish his book and exclude all the inaccuracies or, better yet, just renounce it. I wanted to also include some of the excerpts from Jeff Cass's book because it has information, it has informative section on Sue Klebold. Jeff Cass analyzes Sue Klebold's intake forms when Dylan was sent into his diversion program. We just read that. It is full of Sue retracting her previous statements, lying, and implying Dylan is less culpable for his misbehavior than evidence shows. It makes the book she wrote even more disturbing. Sue is Dylan's PR person, and she has done a successful job. She also states that Dylan is isolated from different cultures. What does that mean? What does that mean? And is intolerant of other what does that mean <laughs> what does it is not there's not even a whole lot of black people there it's like isaiah shoals the water it's not a whole lot of non-white people there man come on uh but then crosses out the intolerant of others section out you can see that below oh man so it's, <laughs> i should share because it's like a page or so let me see assuming sue filled out the questionnaire she had a notable way of addressing some of Dylan's behavior often crossing out phrases or words that seemed to make him more culpable of Dylan's suspension at school she explained he and two friends gained access to school's computer you mean hacked figured out how to find old locker combinations she then crossed out gained access and wrote he and two friends who had access to school's computer figured out how to find old locker combination. The lying wench. She and Dylan opened a locker or two to see if the combinations were current. That is a total lie as if he was only trying to help the school. Dylan himself explained the situation as hacking and possessing important documents. 
Come on, man. Come on, Sue. <laughs> Susan also noted another suspension Dylan had for scratching a school locker and when it came to Dylan's ticket for running a red light. Susan first wrote that he slowed down then kept going when he thought no one was around. She then wrote that he had actually come to a full stop before going through the light. Dylan himself said it was running a red light when no one was around. Susan said the van allegedly had a parking ticket on it, which made the boys think it was abandoned. Oh my god! <laughs> I can't believe. Come on, man. I don't want. See, this is what I mean. Like, I don't want to hear nothing about. Uh, we can we can cure a psychopathy, and we can do the like. Hey, if they're not going to be classified as such, because all of this is just a little tomfoolery, and white boys will be white boys, all of that is totally irrelevant. Lion Sue Klebold and I have even Randy Brown said Sue Klebold is lying said that whole book is a total lie he said same thing PR come on man tell the truth man tell the truth we all fa-. he he said I failed Randy Brown said I failed could have been my son he, he had two sons his son was in school if the bombing went off he would have lost one of his children he continues, Jeff Cass, the Klebolds indicated they had not seen any sudden behavior changes in Dylan, you lying winch, and were surprised when he admitted to occasional use of marijuana and alcohol, was not aware of it at all until counselor Andrea Sanchez asked the question a few moments ago, the parent or parents wrote, the parental attitude towards alcohol and drugs was oddly written in the third. <laughs> I can't do it. Come on. Uh. Uh, was written in the third person contradicting the normalcy contradicting the normalcy Dylan's parents channeled to police and the public after Columbine they told the diversion program he had issues related to anger authority figures jobs and loneliness Dylan is introverted and has grown up isolated from those who are different in age culture or other factors what means different in age like what what everybody he was ever around was the same age <laughs> what that doesn't even make sense what you lying come on man come why do you even let them put a bold face lie like that on the page like come on man you gotta it, come on man they got multiple ages at the high school some of the teachers are not 17 at the high school right jesus christ and then other fa- i don't even what what he is often angry or sullen and behavior seem disrespectful to others. He seems intolerant of those in authority and intolerant of us. <laughs> she then crossed out the phrase, he seems intolerant of those in authority, which is true. Still, Susan had pegged Dylan's core problems and outlined the profile of many school shooters. Dylan also answered questions for intake. When he fought with his parents or brother, they would yell at each other. It would end when we are aware of each other's arguments and understand them. His punishments included being grounded and not being able to use the computer. Dylan's attitude toward diversion was, I'm hoping I can get the best I can out of it and am optimistic about it. He did not think he needed mental health treatment, but wrote, I will do it if diversion deems it necessary or desirable. I'm going to just say... There are some white people who ask, maybe Dylan was the really sinister master manipulator deceiver since so many people said, oh, no, 
Oh, we knew that Eric would do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Tim, no. He was so innocent and sweet and pure and, oh, oh, no. Maybe that was the real psycho because he was planning for a year or two. He could have had opportunities, right? If he was trying to fess up and all that, he could have told somebody. It's lots of ways. <laughs> lots of ways this could have been stopped. I'm walking around with a Wrath t-shirt on and there's that little nigger. Bang! That was asked as a question in a different book. Maybe Dylan was the real psychopath since so few people could believe he would do this convicted felon no less anyway uh, let me see if I had a few notes of my own to share from the second portion then we can wrap up play too much old Ted Kaczynski's passing and how that related to all of the we had delectable negro in there where they're talking about savoring killing all of these people uh that killing is such an integral part of white supremacy racism it's just that as a having an appetite for destruction they make songs and things like that uh let's see so much about the intelligence of these uh folks should have been 4.0 students like ted kaczynski harvard uh let's see Eric's drives his brain was never scanned but it probably would have shown activity unrecognizable Uh, I said brain scientist conference this autumn Uh, a lot of this I feel like is about exonerating uh, making us empathetic towards these killers even Eric I would say Um, let's see Psychopath. Back chapter thirty-nine. All of this about God—that is, the system of whites of the religion of white supremacy. White man, white woman, we are God. That's why I said it's so important because Tim McVeigh said the same. Excuse me, Ted Kaczynski talked in the same manner and being super intelligent and going about doing this thing and even Ted Kaczynski when he has this passage about uh, nature and uh, all the rest of it that uh, is oh where he talk, he says the monotonous human assembly line squelched the life out of, in, out of individual experience Eric put it more of you human nature blown out of your ass philosophically the robot conception was a rare point of agreement between the killers that is Ted Kaczynski that's his whole uh, industrial takeover I forgot the name of his publication he demanded be printed in the newspaper and such but that is Ted Kaczynski straight I'm going to go out in the woods Montana the Freemasons <laughs> build my cabin make my bombs just like Eric Dylan uh, let's see let's see Eric had a, the superiority complex all of that that's why I said I think it's so important to ground all of this in the system of white supremacy because white people kill other white people that superiority I'm supposed to dominate Adolf Hitler killed white people Timothy McVeigh killed white people Eric Rudolph killed white people Ted Kaczynski killed white people like that's not strange for a racist to kill another white person particularly if this is about I'm showing my superiority in some type of way by killing like that is very common to brag I think the caller was talking about making a sport out of this Ted Kaczynski 
you have white people, white FBI officials saying that Ted Kaczynski is competing with Timothy McVeigh. I'm the bomber champion. You heard in this book, these killers saying, no, we are the bomber champions. We're going to top Tim McVeigh. We the bomber champions. Make a game out of killing? Really? That's white supremacy culture, what it means to be white. And that's why I say it's the connected to the superiority. The games dominate. That's what those games are about. Dominate. Control the balls. Keep your eye on the balls. Wellsing. ISIS papers. Pause there. Pick up next week. Wow. I'm so glad we read this. It is criminal. The only thing I knew about this was bowling for Columbine. Leaves out everything. Isaiah, that's another one. See how many, see how many projects, what have you, examine all of this. I think you get the whole way through Bowling for Columbine, you would never hear Isaiah Shoal's name. We'll be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. He doesn't go through and uh, have everybody named, although he does talk to some of the victims directly students and even some of the people parents of people who were killed and or uh, people who were shot but Isaiah Shoals not at all we haven't heard much on him in this book and we're way more than halfway through I'd say at this point we're about 75% of the way done here tomorrow 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific neutralizing workplace racism and we'll be here Saturday compensatory call in Monday guest on Columbine guest on Columbine see if he has a similar viewpoint on these two killers and the role of white supremacy racism in these crimes Monday more details on Columbine Charles Manson alrighty Uh, reading more important than watching television for sure Creator, we ask, oh, sobriety, how could I leave on a book like this, all of that? Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism. You don't want to be vodka. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.